Hey there, Internet. I am Annie, and this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone-cold facts since 1986. Today's fact is going to be a surprise for both you, the audience, and me, the person, because as you may have noticed from the intro, it is me running solo due to some cool COVID-related shit, which, you know, happens now in the year of our Lord 2023. But to back me up here, we have the Crooked Russian Cam Australian team with Lucas Brown, who, of course, you know, is the editor of I Will Fight You and also regular guest host who likes to inflict Theodore Rex on his friends and loved ones. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Which is just now what I've decided is your whole thing now, Lucas. I have a Plex server now and Theodore Rex is on it. (laughs) And then we also have those of you who listen to Gem Jammer will be familiar with her. The DM over on that show, we have Anna Emmeline, who is also here. Hello. Anna, I believe you have the fact for us, so can you tell us what the fact we'll be proving today is and how we will be proving it? Today's fact is more media needs to provide its own ship names. We are doing hackers. Okay. (laughs) So I presented this idea to Annie. And we found that Lucas is the biggest Hackers fan, so we had to bring him on too. I have a lot of feelings about this movie. And before we get started, though, I need to point out, initially, when we were planning this episode, Annie was referring to us as the B-team. And as someone who has Hey, you refer to yourself as the B-team, buddy. Yeah, and then I thought about it, and I realized that the NWO B-team is like Horace Hogan and Vincent and crap. And sorry, we're not the B-team. We're the Wolfpack. And as I thump my microphone, too sweet. This is a joke for, what, my friend Ben Golly? Ben will know what's up. I believe your friend Chris Sims as well. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. So I have never seen Hackers before yesterday, so this was a new experience for me. So this movie came out in 1995, which was the same year as the Sandra Bullock The Net. So that was the Deep Impact Armageddon situation going on. God, this is just the most 1995-ass movie, though. I tell you what. Yeah, and- The range of fame that the actors got from this is wild, from the absolute bottom end to the very tip-top of fame. I was trying to look into, like, the writer and the director of this, and they both have, like, vanishingly small IMDb profiles, but I did really enjoy the writer Raphael Moreau. I am probably mispronouncing that, but he also directed, in 1999, a movie I didn't know existed, but I feel like I should have, The Rage Carry 2. <laughs> you didn't know about The Rage Carry 2, Eddie? Where you been? I did not know about the backhoed in sequel to Carrie, The Rage. Oh my god. That's amazing. Yeah, they killed off that lady who survived the first one. Yeah, you know, it's fine. Spoilers, Lucas. There's lots of fire on the cover. God, okay. So the lead of this movie is one Johnny Lee Miller. He did go on to do other shit. Probably one of the more successful people on this list. He was Sherlock in Elementary, which was the superior Sherlock show because it co-starred Lucy Liu. Don't at me, I'm right. (laughs) He was also in a bunch of garbage, including Eli Stone, which was the writer strike TV show about a guy who hallucinated elaborate musical numbers that were questionably messages from God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. But obviously, the more important co-star here is the babyest Angelina Jolie. She's like 
a, she's so young. She's 20 years old in this movie. I think she had only done like Foxfire before this. Yeah. Was this like her breakout role or? Yeah, because Foxfire was then re-released with her dead center on the cover because Angelina <laughs> Jolie became a thing. As Hackers was also re-released with Angelina Jolie dead center on the cover. Which I mean, she is the girl one. So. And we know you love the girl one, don't you? Oh, I love it when there's a the girl one. But I mean, if it's going to be a girl one, Angelina Jolie is a pretty good the girl one. Okay, so I am going to open the floor to all the gay ladies on this podcast. How hot on a scale of one to ten is Angelina Jolie in this movie? The big pouty lips combined with the like, you know, not great 90s, like, super short hair, but still super short hair. It's a good look. I gotta say, I think it's better than the mullet looks of nowadays. It's like a bowl cut, but it's a little raggedy. Yeah, she's got kind of the two bits hanging over the ears, which is always nice. Yeah. Yeah, and depending on the scene, it's a little bit PC, like she can kind of like flick it out or like style it a little differently. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, like the looks where she's like made up. Listen, her like sleeveless jumpsuit outfit for her party. Oh, my God. That's a good time to point out all of the looks in this movie are fucking immaculate. They're so good. Well, well. They're so deliberately 90s. Yeah, they are extremely 90s. So, you know, move your sliding scale to the 90s looks. Yeah, but they're great 90s looks, except for Joey's, but that's a plot point, kind of. That's on purpose, because Joey sucks. We'll get to how Joey sucks later. (laughs) Speaking of which, speaking of looks in here, probably the look that I have to respect the most while disliking the most, because I know a whole ass gender when I see one. Matthew Lillard is in this one? Oh my god. He's so good! Yeah. He's amazing. That is, again, I recognize that from a distance as a whole ass fucking gender, but man, he's got these braids that sometimes go in front of his ears and behind, like he's got four braids, and I don't know that that works on a little white boy, but you know, yeah, he wants to do it, so bless his heart. Matthew Lillard and Rinaldi Santiago both more or less invented entire genders just for this film. Just for the audience, just for your touchstone, if you don't immediately recognize the name Matthew Lillard, we're talking about the real weirdo who is one of the murderers in Scream. Stu. You might also know him, depending on your age, as Shaggy from the live-action Scooby-Doo movies. And he's also voiced Shaggy since Monsters Incorporated, because the guy who originally voiced Shaggy was such a militant vegan that he insisted Shaggy also be a vegan, and when the network said no, he quit, so they were like, (laughs) Fine. We have infinite shaggies. That's so specific. This is just the kind of reference touch point that I have. Matthew Lillard was also the baddie new boyfriend of the bad girl from She's All That. Yeah. And he was also Freddie Prince Jr.'s offsider in the Wing Commander movie, which will be a future episode (laughs) of this show. Oh, no. Oh, so you're just calling that one now? I call that like, I think like in the pre-show for <laughs> Teddy Rex, we, I was like, we're going to do Wing Commander eventually, and it's going to be a lot. God. <sighs> also, he's just all around just, just the nicest dude, apparently. He's fantastic. But in this movie, he wears like those tight like bondage pants with the straps that come off them and big clumpy Doc Martens boots and like t-shirts that he's turned into crop tops, like, you know, uh, Smashing Pumpkins or Clash t-shirts. Yeah, like over like leotards. Yeah, over like a leotard that like like goes over his hands and like a sleeveless army trench coat and like a World War One pilot's cap. That he throws over it. It's a lot. And don't forget the glasses. Oh, yes. Teeny tiny lens round glasses with blue lenses. 
Oh my god, there are so many small sunglasses in this movie worn uh, indoors at night so you can so you can see. I feel like <laughs> I feel like we should get to explaining the outfits once we get to the characters because otherwise we're going to be sure, here all sure. day. Uh, okay, okay. I do need to point out just a few things I learned from the Wikipedia page, a couple of pull quotes here. First off, this movie was released for home distribution on two formats, VHS and Laserdisc. Nice. It was a while before we got a digital versatile disc of this movie. God, laser fucking disc, folks. Second, a quote. The screenplay written by Raphael Moreau is highly inspired by the hacker and cyberpunk subcultures. He saw the film as more than just about computer hacking, but something much larger. Quote, in fact, to call the hackers a counterculture makes it sound like they're a transitory thing. I think they're the next step in human evolution. <laughs> It is 1995. Uh, I remember this. I remember this. He said there was a new Eden missile that was going to start a new ice age, and it was going to kill all the humans, and there was two dinosaurs on it. Yeah, they put it at the beginning of that other movie. You know the movie, right? God damn it. Also, one more quote, just to really set the stage for this film. Quote, the cast spent three weeks getting to know each other and yes. learning how to type and rollerblade. Johnny Lee Miller did not learn very well how to type. He's such a bad typist. He is a hunt and peck typer, poor guy. God. I also have a pull quote. It may. Roger Ebert liked this movie. He gave it three <laughs> out of four stars and said it was smart and entertaining, but compared the computer stuff to, quote, the archaeology in Indiana Jones. And I think that's actually a fair comment. <laughs> yeah, but Siskel gave it a thumbs down being like, there is not enough substance here to really latch on to at all. Uh. <laughs> so the budget was $20 million and it made back $7.5 million. Yeah, this oh, thing was a ouch. garbage fire in theaters. It very much <laughs> was a cult hit trajectory. Speaking of home media releases, though, the soundtrack was so comprehensive that they had to release three albums. Three volumes. Yeah, there is music from the movie, music inspired by the movie. Yeah, only Train Spotting at the time had done something similar where you get Train Spotting, Train Spotting 2, and Train Spotting 3 because they used so much music in that movie. Those three volumes are basically 90s music of the time with a slight counterculture twist in a nutshell. It's like a snapshot of 95. It's like The Prodigy, Orbital, Underworld, Stereo MCs, Carl Cox, Left Field, Moby, BT, Massive Attack. Like, hey, kids. Do you remember, you know, no, the, the kids don't. I'm sorry. Hey, adults. You remember <laughs> the, like, the tinny techno music that we had before, like, EDM really evolved as a genre in, like, the early 90s? It's that on multiple discs. <sighs> it's so good. I mean, hey, the only way it could have been more 90s is if they had the crystal method on there. Guess I didn't know. Actually, did this release on, on tape cassette first? No, I think this would have been past that. Or were we on compact discs? We were on compact discs. Okay, because, I mean, it does bear repeating that this movie, a lot of plot points do heavily rely on the three and a half inch floppy disc existing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Shall we just get into it then? Yeah, let's do. Real quick, before we get started, sorry. I feel like Lucas and I should 
tell a little bit about our history with this movie because like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good clearly idea. we both have history with it lucas you want to go first i was tempted into this movie like a little kid into a van with a promise with free candy oh lucas by the tv guide channel because <laughs> i would be looking looking through the tv guide channel this was before you could control the tv guide channel it would just scroll and you'd have to wait and so if you missed your channel you'd have to wait for it to go all the way around the horn to come back and so I was waiting and waiting. And so they would play the movies that were on pay-per-view. And one of them was Hackers. And they made this movie seem way sexier than it actually <laughs> is. Although, I would say, it's pretty sexy at times. It's horny. It's horny as hell. But I remember specifically they ended the trailer with, like, the music kind of fading out and echoing. And that shot of Johnny Lee Miller running off into the fog. Oh, shit. And disappearing. Oh, wow. And I remember like thinking, like, this is a cool movie for grownups. I don't know if I can handle <laughs> this movie. And then later, I, I rented it from, probably not from Blockbuster, probably from the convenience store, the same convenience store that I saw at the RX at, and then watched it myself, promptly taped it with my two VCRs and watched it until the tape fell apart. Uh, wow, you hacked hackers. I did. This was during my video piracy days. I had many labels with very small writing on them. I can imagine. God. Funnily enough, my story with Hackers also begins with video piracy. I was 18 or 19 when I first watched this movie, so the same age as the main characters were meant to be. So something you got to know about me is that when I was young, I basically had to build my computer out of spare parts and junk. And it was so crappy that I could only get it to run some ultralight Linux distributions. So I became a Linux elitist. I didn't actually know anything. Oh, honey. <laughs> I thought I was hot shit. Oh, honey, gem jewel. Oh. But in reality, the most I ever did was some very light scripting. Not at all impressive. So I was like thinking I was a super cool hacker at age 20. In reality, like I still barely know a single line of code. But take... All these hot 20-somethings hacking the baddies and saving the day and show them to a young Anna who'd just been kicked out of home and was desperate to find meaning and was clinging to this subculture for connection. Oh, honey. Well, when my friend pirated this movie and gave it to me, <laughs> I was hooked on the movie and everything it claimed to stand for. <laughs> that was a hell of a year. And... It did indeed hack your planet. It did indeed hack my planet. Oh, Lord of mercy. <laughs> so you were just like, look, a new core memory. I literally remember having my shitty constructed computer that was basically held together with duct tape and prayers. The, the case was dented. Oh, no. And I would run hackers on it on Linux and play that in the background while I was doing some crappy scripting. And I remember, like, <laughs> it was winter and I was literally wearing fingerless gloves. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> On one hand, I thought I was so cool. On the other hand, I tried to extend myself grace because I was young and traumatized and looking for any kind of meaning in my life back then. Oh, yeah. That winds around from being just dumb teen shit to just being charming. It's precious. Yeah. That's why this movie means so much to me. Let they who have never cut the first and last and then two middle on the other side fingers out of a pair of cheap gloves <laughs> to look like gambit throw the first stone. <laughs> oh, man. Let's get into this shit, folks. We start on the far off year of 1988 in Seattle, Washington, ostensibly because y'all 
I could not tell you where the f*** this gigantic suburban neighborhood is meant to be within the bounds of Seattle, Washington. Is this Queen fucking Anne? I don't know. That's a joke for me. That's a joke for the one American in this chat right now. Yes, thank you. And the one <laughs> Seattleite. I know I'm aware of this. Thank you. We in Vancouver looked down upon Seattle and assumed it was just like giant terrace lawns and red transams being washed <laughs> and other such things that you normally only see in a Paperboy game. And as an Australian, I saw the most American suburb imaginable. It just looks like white suburban America to me. I, that's all I see. It all looks the same. And to make it even more American, we have some juddery slow motion footage of a SWAT team charging across this lawn. Hey yeah. kids, remember when tactical assault teams were a frightening rarity reserved only for the most dangerous criminals and terrorists? This movie does. That's going to be real cool in this movie. Yeah. yeah. They don't even have SWAT on them. They're just running around with black clothes and military caps and M16 rifles. And guns out. And you can tell it's a fantasy because they don't shoot the dog. Right. <laughs> There's a dog barking. <laughs> Here's the thing that's going to drive me bananas. They barge into this house, breaking down the door. There's a woman who's just dishing up breakfast. And they're here, all heavily armed, to kill, presumably, I guess, arrest a guy named Dade Murphy, who we are going to find out in a cute little camera pivot of scanning across adult faces and scanning down to a child, is a surly 11-year-old. So they were here to shoot an 11-year-old. They came armed just in case the 11-year-old had a gun? Also, when they rush past his mom, she goes from shrieking in fear that someone's just busted down her house. And then as they run past her, she gives this really annoyed, like, hey, <laughs> what's the mom story? What movie is she in? She doesn't seem as freaked out as she should be. She's just like, hey, what's wrong? This is a woman who has been expecting this day to come for a while. She just expected they might, you know, call ahead first. Ring the doorbell, maybe do the barest uh. amount of research to know that they were about to break into a three-person household with an 11-year-old. They literally stack up on Dade's bedroom door and, like, do, like, a tactical nod to each other and smash into it and break it down. This child's bedroom door. And, like, you may think that this is going to be a point where it's, like, the turnabout is going to be comic that you don't realize that this is an extremely not dangerous 11-year-old. But they will use this exact amount of force for a whole bunch of teenagers with computers throughout the movie. This is just setting our standard. Yeah, and not as made to it being that these are Secret Service agents specifically, which why is the Secret Service policing computer crimes? I don't know. Generally speaking, the Secret Service is usually at least in sort of like the public sphere is they're the hired muscle protecting the president or any kind of like important gubernatorial dignitary. However, I was talking to John about this earlier, and he actually looked it up. And it turns out that one of the other things the Secret Service does, and indeed, one of the things it was founded on doing was preventing financial crimes. So that, uh, I guess, accounts uh, for okay. Dade here, because we'll find out exactly what he did in the next scene. But that also might account for at least one or two of the other things. But I don't really think this movie is going for any sort of reality for who wants to kill the hackers. The next scene is in a courtroom and as Annie mentioned we pan across these adult faces and then all we see is like spikes poking up at the bottom of the screen and you pan down to like you said this very surly <laughs> 11 year old in a little suit and a very young Felicity Huffman looking like Dana Scully. <laughs> 
This is before she tried to rig college entrance exams and went to jail. (laughs) (laughs) The scene cuts from the police breaking down the door to the courtroom in what can only be called a very literal smash cut. Oh, I see what you did there. Thank you. I honestly feel like the camera panning across the adult faces and then stop and directly going down to date is probably my favorite bit of camera work in this movie. A lot of it is more like theoretical, but that is the one that feels the most like communicating a lot of sort of jokes and information in just one camera movement. This movie has a lot of really, it's really bad all around, but there are just enough really clever or inspired choices peppered throughout it to keep you going. There's like someone here knows something about cinematography, knows something about filmmaking. It's just everything else it's packaged in. It's a bit of a broken clock thing, I think. If you keep throwing <laughs> enough movie at the wall, something's going to stick eventually. And this is so much movie. There's so much movie in this movie. <laughs> Felicity Huffman is saying the defendant, Dade Murphy, who calls himself Zero Cool. Oh, God. We're going to hear so many people <laughs> saying these stupid names with a very serious face. Uh, a lot of people go only by their hacker handles until... Their names are revealed later. So she highlights his superior intelligence, which he uses to a destructive and antisocial end because he made a computer virus that crashed 1,507 systems in a single day, caused a seven-point drop in the stock exchange, and apparently that was a big shock to people in 1995. (laughs) We here in 2023 have lived through the GameStop incident. (laughs) Wait, you're telling me there's volatility in the stonks? Wow, is it Tuesday again? (sighs) No problem. Also, dear listeners, you need to know that Lucas was directly imitating Felicity Huffman's intonation there. It was almost eerie. (laughs) Again, she's going full Dana Scully. The judge finds his family $45,000, which is a lot of money in 1995. Yeah, in 2023 dollars at the equivalent of $116,789.26. That's $182,000 Australian this year. So much money. And in something I I love, he is forbidden to own or operate a computer or a touch-tone telephone until he is 18 years old. Dear kids, in 1988, this was something you could reasonably do for seven years. You could just not interact with a computer for seven years. He didn't need it for school. He was just missing out on, like, the Oregon Trail and number munchers. <laughs> something you could do, although clearly it did mess with him because, well, you'll see. We'll get to also, that. Also, I just find it so charming that he had to distinguish a touch-tone telephone in the same way that you once had to distinguish a cordless telephone. Listen, kids, he means a non-rotary phone where you press buttons and it makes a beep noise. That was a thing that wasn't understood just to be the default at that point. Because back then you could actually hack touch-tone telephones. Right? Yes, which we'll get to. I wonder if he'd be allowed to use a calculator watch. Oh. Calling it a touch-tone telephone is a lot like Douglas Adams saying, like, people still thought digital watches were a neat idea. (laughs) God, they're pretty neat, though. They are a pretty neat idea. So now we get the credits and some orbital and we get to see Dade and his family getting perp walked into the car and he's sad. He actually like sheds a little tear. His tough exterior breaks for a minute. (laughs) This little 11 year old tear. (laughs) But it's okay because seven years later, he's now on a plane to New York City. It's funny, Annie, it wasn't until I met you that I understood the significance of moving from Seattle to New York all the way across the country. I didn't know that. Yeah, it is the opposite side of the country. It is the other coast 
of an entire continent. We learn later that his mom has gotten a new job and there was a divorce and he chose to live with his mom. And so he flew all the way across the country just before the beginning of his senior year of high school. And so he doesn't know anybody. But also, this is something that's never specifically discussed, but it can be inferred. So, Annie, you know more about anime than me. (laughs) So is there a thing about a protagonist who's supremely talented at fighting, but he never gets to actually fight? So he just sits and does like a thousand push-ups a day and reads every book on martial arts. And then when he goes to actually fight someone, he like blows them up like in Fist of the North Star. Are you just describing One Punch Man? See, I thought it was One Punch Man, but I'm like, no, Saitama at least actually like like trained and stuff, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Saitama like basically oh just, I, you know, I, I've barely watched any One Punch Man, but basically I think the gist is that he like- Basically, he just did push-ups and sit-ups and running. He did just like, he trained over and over and over again so he could be the best at punching and then he really only has to punch anybody once and they die. It's a good manga. Yeah. An okay anime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mob Psycho's better. As they're flying over New York City, it shifts to a view that we're going to get a lot, which is where they build cities out of, like, circuit boards and microprocessors and traces and stuff. Hey, have you ever looked at a a city grid and said, hey, that could be, like, a circuit board? These are the people, they're like, I am the first person that has ever had this thought here in the digital age of 1995. (laughs) (laughs) I want to point out that there is no CGI in this movie. None at all. So these famous Circuit City like hacking montages. You took the words right out of my mouth. It's not a single bit of CGI. You're right. It's all hand drawn or it's all hand animated because CG looked too flat and cold at the time. It didn't look warm and inviting enough. They had to animate all of it to make it look good. Exactly. Now, before you necessarily go saying that this is like an instance of, oh, this is care and craft and they didn't do things like terrible CGI these days. It's mostly just because the technology wasn't really there yet for this sort of thing. These are fairly basic breakdowns. It's the same kind of way that like Tron did some early CGI pioneering, but a lot of it was mixed media stuff because, again, we just couldn't really do that kind of thing yet. So you see a lot of miniatures, so like some motion controls and rotoscoping. But yeah, people assume it's like, oh, you just go into a computer world. That means CGI. If you want a version of that, you could watch The Lawnmower Man. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. It's a very bad movie. <laughs> yeah, it took us a while until the technology was prepared to do these kinds of digital deep dives. Like, this ain't the fucking new adventures of Johnny Quest here. <laughs> Quest world. So Dade is in his room. Now a teenager. In douchey little sunglasses. Oh my god, in his bedroom, in the dark, drinking a f***ing jolt cola. God. And it's past midnight, so his mother says, happy birthday. And then asks him what he's doing, and he responds, honestly, I'm taking over a TV network. And she's just like, oh, I'll finish up and go to bed. (laughs) This is the start of something Miller does with the character, actually, that I noticed. Whenever someone asks him something and he's not sure about it, he distinctly pauses, takes about two seconds to come to a decision, makes up his mind and commits to it. And he does this about four or five times throughout the movie as like just a little unspoken character trait. There's like a moment later where he takes a full four seconds. Oh, yes. There are a few of those. And just from basically from Miller and Jolie, but actually, no, from all of them, there's like little moments of characterization that, again, way too detailed for a movie of this quality. They're the kind of thing you'd see in like a high budget film, not this trash. 
honestly, the thing that really sticks out for this interaction for me is just that this sets the tone for the mother character more so than even her first appearance, is that she is such an underrated part of this movie. And honestly, she probably should have had more scenes and she probably should have been a larger part of the plot considering how she gets used later on. But like she gets like one spotlight scene towards the very end and it's the best shit and I love her. It's uh, so good. Yes. And you realize why that for a moment, why Dade went with her instead of his shitty deadbeat dad. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, Dade's mom rules. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I really wish that she had been in more of this movie, that she had been like more of an integral plot character. That would have been great. Yeah. Also, we don't learn it till later, but her name is Lauren Murphy. So- Who's ready for some hacking? Oh, my God. (laughs) Here we go. Okay. So, like, we're going to start here with maybe the kind of hacking that is what hacking usually is, like, most of the time in the real world, which is just some basic ass phishing. Can you tell me your password? Hello, this is the wallet inspector. Yeah, real basic impersonation attack. His screen is four scrolling columns in different directions with giant symbols interspersing it, like a lightning bolt. (laughs) Oh, my God. A biohazard. Oh, my God. An RFID. Oh, my God. Uh. I hate and kind of like respect the movie user interfaces on here i love movie user interfaces i love how weird and fake they are but like the ones in this one oh there's some doozies in this one not to be believed oh there's some real good ones in this one so we cut to otv studios where norm the security guard is about to have the worst night of his life (laughs) norm (laughs) because his phone rings and dade puts on this like 80s guy from futurama (laughs) voice Norm, uh, Norm speaking, security. Norman, this is Eddie Vedder from accounting. And then he just starts spouting out acronyms that don't even need to be acronyms just to make it sound even more technical than it actually is. Well, he susses it out first and he says, Norman, do you know anything about computers? And Norman's response is, uh, and he's like, great, I can completely bullshit this guy. So my BLT drive on my computer just went AWOL. Just say AWOL. I got a big project due for Mr. Kawasaki. All right, Norm, here's what I want you to do. Read me the number on the modem. And Norm goes, and he goes, no, Norm, it's it's a little box. It's got switches on it. Let's my computer talk to the one over there. A little bit of exposition for the audience. Yeah, audience, you wouldn't <laughs> have known. No, this is not like shit that would have just been common in your house you, where you may have had one computer, not like lots of devices that connect to the internet. And then we do this thing that I really like about the movie, and it's only really a visual motif in the first half, but Dave closes his eyes, and we see a lot of TV clips flicker across the screen, and he opens them, and it's like he's thinking in movie clips. And this goes really well for about the first 30 minutes, and then they just stop doing it. Kind of makes me sad. They do it like one or two more times after that, but it's just like, it's disjointed and jarring if you don't know what's happening. The best thing I can call it is that he goes into a mind palace. (laughs) It's like some other character from another thing in the future who had a mind palace with a name. What was that again? It was a different character entirely. That one was played by Bondersnoot Snigglepots. (laughs) Oh, by Bandicoot Bandersnatch. That's the one. 
I've never had a problem saying Benedict Cumberbatch, and I don't understand people who do. Well, it's fun to say other things, <laughs> oh. Lucas. <laughs> Lucas, it's not an accident. By the way, they actually had Kevin Mitnick, a hacker of note, on set, meeting the cast and telling them stuff. And Kevin Mitnick wrote a lot about social engineering. And if you really want to break down everything that Dade says to Norm, it follows all of the pillars of social engineering. He's likable. He reciprocates. He asks him for help. He gets him on side. He used to call him Norman instead of Norm. I am not going into the presentation that I've had from a magician that teaches you about social engineering, but trust me, if you had seen it, it would make a lot of sense. <laughs> it turns out there's a lot of people who have done research on how to manipulate other people, folks. Really? It's almost like manipulation is a thing that people have been doing for a long time. Mm. All right, everybody shut up. We've got to talk about ARPs now. Oh, God. <laughs> Here we go. The automated record playback system, which is a little robot. That chooses the tapes for the TV station. It, it's so cute. It's like VHS tapes. Yeah, so it's like almost 3 or 4 a.m. at this point, so it's all reruns now. And Data's decided that he doesn't want to watch whatever bigoted-looking talk show host is on TV. He wants to watch The Outer Limits. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to The Outer Limits. Yeah, this guy is specifically spewing, like, racist eugenicist crap. And Dade hears it and he like, says, yak, yak, yak. And he points to the screen and says, get a job. Dramatically presses enter to finish his command. Yeah, when you press enter, that makes the hack go. It's like Tom Hanks and you've got mail blowing on his fingers, yeah. twiddling them, and then pressing enter in a big dramatic way. And we see machinery swapping some videotapes from one VHS called America First to another with the outer limits on it. And back in his room, Dade opens a can of soft drink and toasts the screen as it changes. And of course, you know, it's that famous outer limit opening monologue, which is like, we have controlled your network. Do not attempt to adjust your television because, you know. We control the horizontal and the vertical, the deepest inner mind to the outer limits. Because, you know, the hacker controlled the thing. <laughs> also, small shout out, the ARPS machine has a very small, very well-lettered, handwritten sign that says, on air, do not touch, stuck on top of the machine <laughs> because some things are universal. <laughs> I love a sign that tells a story. Uh, just a bit of environmental storytelling. <laughs> you know some f***er unplugged the machine to put the coffee maker <laughs> on and then everything went bad one night. <sighs> there wouldn't be a sign if there hadn't been an incident. So this is all going pretty well for Dade right now. He's having a nice birthday, but then suddenly his computer gets a PowerPoint presentation on it. And he gets this message in, like, blood red letters that say, you, letter you, have tread upon my domain. Who are you? And he's like, I should instantly answer this message. This is fine. This is fine. I'm zero crash override. I came up with a cool new name. I'm not zero cool. I don't know who that is. Yes, zero cool. That's the name for a child. I'm crash override, a mature adult. <laughs> and he asks who wants to know, and the entire screen flashes with flames, with incredibly detailed high frame rate flames that say acid burn. So dramatic. 
This is the part where I just start to question exactly how well any of these computers could have displayed these sorts of graphics at the time. But, you know, it's a movie film. Lucas, what does Acid Burn says? <laughs> Acid Burn says leave before you are expunged. And if you <laughs> think that the UR is the letter U and the letter R, you'd be correct. And the letter B and the numeral four. Says is also C-E-Z. <laughs> so I'm just saying, if you had the character space for expunged, surely you had enough characters to say the word you or the word says with a Y-S. But Annie, it's about style. Yeah, Data's a little bit bemused. He's like, unbelievable. A hacker, he said the thing. <laughs> he said the thing. That's the name of the movie. <laughs> and then his outer limits turned off and he gets pissed. <laughs> it's hacker fight time. Tape, fight, tape, fight. And you know it's a fight because Voodoo People by the Prodigy kicks on, making uh, the most dramatic and electrifying scene of a robot fighting with itself trying to put tapes into a machine. <laughs> it's just frantically passing tapes back and forth. It is two kids fighting over the remote from long distance. <laughs> Literally. Oh, my God. Yeah. And they pass back and forth little, like, threats, I guess. Like, I will swat you like the bug you are. I will snap your back like a toothpick. Mess with the best. Die like the rest. <laughs> and it's all interspersed with grainy clips from old movies like Errol Flynn sword fights and Western gunfights. And yeah, they do the Dam Busters. They do Demetrius and the Gladiators. Even dinosaurs fighting. I guess this is Dade's Mind Palace again? When I was a kid, not understanding what the machine did, I was like, oh, they're putting in relevant clips to taunt each other. That would have been good, though. Oh, my God. And I'm like, of course, that's not what's happening. But I appreciate that as a view. That's like some Monkey Island insult combat. Because right at the end, as he's typing, messed with the best, die like the rest, suddenly all the fights that we're seeing clips of resolve. The T-Rex gets gored by the Triceratops. The pirate stabs the other guy. Guybrush Threepwood says how appropriate you fight like a cow. Yeah, but literally <laughs> as Data's writing, the coolest, most 90s, mess with the best, die like the rest, he gets a flash that says, you are terminated because... Acid Burn, instead of attempting to take control like they've been doing, just cut him off. And Data's so surprised, he says out loud, shit on me. Our hero. <laughs> just kicks him out. There you go. One Punch Man was so busy trying to fight, he didn't notice that someone cut a trapdoor underneath him. And then he gets to look down and hold up a little umbrella, and then he falls a long way. <laughs> That's literally it. Also, uh... this will be relevant for the movie's climax. <laughs> Oh, yes, yes. Mess with the best, die like the rest. That comes up halfway through, just so we don't forget it. Our screenwriter pal looked at mess with the best, die like the rest, and then looked it in on his little printout draft, circled it and highlighted it, and nodded to himself like, yeah. It's a great line if you're in the 90s. It sure does rhyme. <laughs> All right, so the next morning, his mom is unpacking, and she gives some expository dialogue to, I guess, utilities on the phone, where she's like, yes, it has been a week, and my son has been playing with his computer all night. Yes, I know, he could just be masturbating. Yes, I'll ask, Dade, are you gay? No, Bob. <laughs> you like girls, don't you? Yes, Mom. They're just not as charming as you. See, I took this to be she's pretending to have a phone conversation so she can be like a little bit snarky. 
But I think I like it better if she's actually talking to the poor power company guy who does not want to hear about her son's nocturnal habits. Look, he's the one who was like, the guy on the other end was like, are you sure your son's not just masturbating instead of being on the computer? Because it's 1995 when we're not sure that there are things for you to masturbate to on the computer yet. (laughs) (laughs) There's a scene later where there's a tiny hint of how porn is not on computers yet. It is still in magazines, but we'll get to that. And so he's like, no, mom, I'm not gay. And also, just so you know, I haven't had sex yet. I am a virgin. Now I'm off to shower. You know, normal conversations to have with your mom. (sighs) I do like this scene. It has some teasing back and forth and kind of establishes that they have a snarky dialogue, but that snarky dialogue is the friendly part. Because after this, we do get a little bit of real tension, over-dramatized, but it is real for them. Because she walks in his room and spots that he's plugged it into the phone and then goes and beats on the door of the bathroom and actually loses her temper at him. Dear youths, you used to have to connect to the internet through the phone line, and if the computer was using the phone, nobody could call things on the phone. That used to be a thing. Date. This town is meant to be a new start for all of us, and you're fucking this up. (laughs) Uh, If you get caught again, it's no college for you. It's jail. Yeah, you're also an adult now, and so if you get caught with a federal crime, you go the f*** to jail. You don't get probation. (laughs) (sighs) And Day just, like, sulks and turns the shower on again. Yeah, also, gotta say, Johnny Lee Miller's arms in this scene, like, he's got his his hands up to, like, lather his hair, and, like, the the deltoid on his shoulder is, like, popped. Dude has been working out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's all the cool rollerblading that he's been doing on set. All the digital push-ups. He's 23 years old. He's trying to impress Angelina Jolie. It's like you put in the work. Yeah, didn't he and Angelina Jolie, didn't it say that they got married right after this movie and then divorced like a year later but remained friends? That is 100% correct. Yeah. Yeah. So he He, was definitely working out to try and impress her. He went to her other wedding. Really? Oh, that's cute. Oh, that's adorable. Yes. Is he a Brangelina shipper? He just wants those crazy kids to work it out. (laughs) (laughs) So he leaves for school on his rollerblades, coming out of a brownstone in Manhattan. Mrs. Murphy, how good is your job? Yeah, what the f***? This dude just moved into Manhattan, and that's a sizable kitchen for an apartment in Manhattan. Holy shit. Like, sure, they're going to subdivide the brownstones, but yeah, it's a lot. Oi, oi. And he's wearing this blue and brown camo vest over an olive shirt. It's such a look. God, he's going to be wearing this a lot, this movie. And cargo pants with those little, like, the neon zipper tags that are on every pocket. He's dressed like he's an SSX. God, you're right. (sighs) This fucking look. And he's got to use it to rollerblade to school because he's a cool guy. And there are lots of people rollerblading to school. Because it's the 90s. It's 1995, dude. Get with it. It's the 90s. (laughs) Except for his cool look ends as soon as he gets to school and he has no idea where to go and he can't find the office and he asks someone for directions. And it turns out to be Freak, played by Rinaldi Santiago. Freak is going to introduce himself fully later on once he decides the date is worth talking to because right now he's talking to someone in Venezuela. On a payphone. Yeah, Date asks the worst person for help. He goes to someone on a payphone instead of asking someone, one of the hundreds of students, who's not on a payphone. Like, come on. And by the way, Freak is wearing, he is double layered leopard print in both pink and gold. It's, it's beautiful. It's striking. He's got curly hair down to his shoulders. In the whole movie, he spends walking like he's on a runway. And that is because 
he's actually a model. His mum was a seamstress, and after oh, this shit. movie, he went on to found a fashion line that's still going to this day. Oh, hell yeah! Good for him. He walks like he's on a runway because he's used to walking on runways, and he just brings that wholeheartedly to this character. Yeah, Freak is a lot of fun. Yeah. Freak is my favorite character in this movie. Like, this was just the standout immediately as soon as Freak was on screen. I was like... That one. Why isn't this movie about Freak? (laughs) When Freak is not on screen, all of the other characters should be asking, where is Freak? Also, dear listener, Freak is spelled P-H and is referring to a kind of phone hacking you could do back when phones were touch tone. Play the right tones down the phone line, it does the things you want it to. He's just he's just a delight. He's just this little Latin is radiating the queerest fucking energy I have seen in this entire film, which is a gay ass movie. God, it's just I just he's just so charismatic and I just want to hang around with him instead of Dade, who is really just dating about. He finally finds the office and then he suddenly. Yeah. Speaking of gay ass, here we go. (laughs) He's asked for transfer forms by a 20-year-old baby Angelina Jolie, and he's so stunned he can't reply for 10 straight seconds of screen time. Which, honestly, Homest Among Us could reply to that. Yeah. Like, with any kind of coolness. Like, imagine being 18 years old, and then you see this girl with ears full of piercings, immaculate eyebrows, boyish haircut, but just punk enough with the sideburns. Listen, when I first saw her back and we were this, I was the same age as the character, I had feelings back then which over a decade and a gender transition later i recognize as not knowing whether i wanted her or wanted to be her yeah it's a real bisexual conundrum of just being like hi (laughs) pretty pretty Uh, girl hi 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 date even has one of his montages where he like lays over with like a Liechtenstein print and like famous kisses throughout movies ancient statues and paintings of lovers and stuff Yeah, he has another Mind Palace vision of having a boner. (laughs) But during this, you can hear her saying, hello, are you listening? And then finally she says, do you speak English? And it is focusing in on her perfect lips. Uh, And he finally snaps too and he's like, right, sorry, you, you wanted, she's like transfer forms and he's like, here, sorry. Here, here, whatever you want, paperwork, yes, hi. God. Anna, you talked about like Dade taking a moment and thinking about it and how that is part of informing his acting. Throughout here to the end of the scene, he sort of like half yell barks everything he says because he is so <laughs> out of sorts by this incredibly hot woman who is barely talking to him. Like she's like, so the gym is through here. And he's like, yeah, great. Good. Girl pretty. Girl pretty. Also, in the background of the office, there's this one girl who's standing and leaning against the back wall. Oh, up against the wall. Yeah, yeah. She's watching and grinning super widely at every interaction between them. She never stops staring at Day the entire time. When they leave, they move past her and she even waves goodbye and she little waves at him. She's never seen again. She like wiggles her fingers in that cute little like flirty wave, like have fun. These kids go fuck. She's never seen again. It's just some extra who owned that scene. There's a lot of extra overacting in this high school set, honestly. Oh, it's so good. Literally in the immediate after scene, they're walking through the halls and there is another extra in the background who moves like he's about to go put the moves on the girl, on Jolly's character, but two of his mates hold him back. Little things like that happen all the time in this movie. 
Like, you know that episode of Futurama where Zoidberg's uncle directs a movie and he's like, what are you all standing around for? You should be moving and making noise, flapping your arms. It's a talkie. Throw a pie or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I already used that clip for the Theodore Rex episode, Annie. <laughs> um, but I'm right. Wave your arms and make faces. What is this, a morgue? <laughs> so she's showing him around. She's like, here's the cafeteria. Here's the gym. And here's your class. And he looks at her and kind of stunned. And he goes, am I, am I not in your class? And she looks him dead in the eye and goes, no, you're not in my class. I'm surprised he's still alive. God. <laughs> the way he says, I'm not in your class, is like such a disappointed puppy look. And she just laughs because she's like, oh, my God, no, of course you're not. I don't know you. Who are you? You don't mean anything to me. And he's just like, oh, give me time. Yeah, and he's like, and a pretty girl was politely dismissive to him, and Dade took that extremely personally. <laughs> well, so then, so then this extremely weird interaction happens, where a guy who is dressed like a 50s dad, he's got slick hair, he's got a striped collared shirt with like inch wide stripes, which is tucked into jorts, and he's wearing a long sweater vest over it, and he's like, Hey, you know, <laughs> tell him about the pool, Kate. Uh, and Kate seems hesitant, but eventually she says, yeah, there's this Olympic sized swimming pool up on the roof. It's just up the stairs that way. And he decides to go check it out immediately. Skip his class entirely. Just go up to the roof now because he's a gullible piece of shit. <laughs> and he steps out and a bunch of general casting nerds immediately shout, hold the door, and the door slams shut, locking him on the roof with all the other kids who have fallen for this dumb fucking prank. God, there's like six of them out there. And then it starts raining. And then, yeah, it starts to rain. They're all stuck out there. We never find out exactly how they get down from the roof, but they do because we immediately cut to Dade sopping wet tracking mud and water through the school in the hallway and he passes Kate who's like oh my god he found the pool and we get this old <laughs> movie clip in Dade's mind of a woman screaming while a man strangles her <laughs> so that's cool because now Dade's horny feelings have mixed up with his angry feelings and I'm sure that's never a problem for young men what a cool great thing to happen Nothing bad could possibly come of this. God, I don't like Dade. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. So we cut to computer class, and Freak is using motion control to make the skeletons screw on the screen. Making them grind on each other. Yeah, there's a sub, and you hear him say that their normal computer teacher was arrested at an anti-fur rally because it's the 90s. <laughs> Which is a wild bit of just, like, throwaway ADR. It doesn't <sighs> need to be there at all. It's just flavor. So Freak turns around and sees day doing a completely normal thing which is looking up Kate's school file and, and I will just tell you the fonts on this particular Macintosh computer they were using sent me back like I saw that oh and I God. like it's that fixed cyst font that I have always loved and yeah she's got a glamour shot as her student photo like it's a straight up glamour shot rendered in black and white highly pixelated and her other classes are Russian, calculus, physics, ancient Asian literature, fencing, and advanced English. What the f*** kind of <laughs> high school was this? Dane looks at that list and he goes, yeah, maybe I could do advanced English and puts himself into the same class as her. Yeah. Again, he decided to take a polite dismissal and a prank extremely personally and is now going to stalk this girl and throw himself into her classes. What the uh. f*** actually? Hey, if he had taken fencing, she could have stabbed him. 
<laughs> he could have taken fencing. He could have had fun for gym uh, class. And this whole time, Freak, who we only know really as a leopard print dude, is just watching the whole time like, oh, does this guy know things? Hmm. Yeah, so he like tracks him down after school as Data's walking away. And he's like, hey, so uh, what's your interest in Kate Libby? Is it academic? Is it purely sexual? And Dade says, homicidal. And Freak does not react like that was an extremely troubling thing to hear. And introduces himself as the Phantom Freak, the King of Ninex. Yeah, you know, homicidal, a totally normal thing to say for someone who is directly invading a girl's privacy in school. A new student who's just arrived, who has just found a girl and immediately fixated on her. Nothing could possibly go wrong. It's cool. He's an anime protagonist. He's just the mysterious transfer student who's really, really good at the thing that the school likes to do. (sighs) Sidebar, uh, Anna, you mentioned phone freaking, so I thought I'd I'd bring up that it was originally there was a hacker named John Draper who was known as Captain Crunch who found that the whistle that came with the Captain Crunch cereal box when whistled down a phone. Oh, that's right. It was a cereal whistle. And that's also why later we meet a character named Serial Killer, which is a shout out to that because he was known as Captain Crunch or Crunchman. And so or Crunchman, I don't know. I only read it. And that's what Freak does. And later you'll see him do it. So when he's talking about phone freaking, that's his thing. Speaking of which, if you ever watched Infinity Train, folks, the first season when it is talking about the two characters from the end of the first season and goes through their backstory with Amelia. That is actually what is going on when she does that into a payphone with a whistle. She is doing this kind of hacking. Because older phones used to operate not through like the same computerized stuff we did. They literally sent like tones back and forth to each other that people weren't supposed to be able to replicate. But if you recorded them with a like a micro cassette recorder or imitate them with a whistle, you could get them and you could make the phones respond to these tone commands for switching around and stuff. It's actually extremely cool. Yeah, like it's fascinating. And 9X, I found out, was a major telecoms company at the time, but is now gone. Yeah, my bell ate him up. This cool interaction where Freak has to say, I know you play the game, as a basketball <laughs> is dunked into a hoop directly behind Dade, as if we don't understand the metaphor. Uh, but then that's interrupted because Joey has to turn up. Fucking Joey. Joey sucks. So this is Joey. And so, Lucas, you said that the actor that played this character was like older than everyone else that was playing teens, right? Just about everybody. Like, I think I think Angelina Jolie is the youngest of the group. She was 20 and Johnny Lee Miller was 23. Matthew Lillard was 25. The kid who plays Joey was 26, but he looks and acts like a 14 year old. And the thing is that, like, with this kind of character, he's what I like to call a Denny because it's a phenomenon I first noticed watching The Room when there's a character who's significantly older than everyone else. And it is the costumings department's problem to try and make him look younger. So they just dress him in, like, the babiest clothes. Like, Joey's got overalls. And even in the 90s, this dude wears overalls like a 10-year-old wearing his first pair of Oshkosh. Overalls and a backwards cap. Yeah, the backwards cap in the same way that Denny is just dressed perennially in the room in oversized rugby shirts to try and make him look like a baby. I gotta say, though, they did a really good job casting Joey because his actor plays the role as you would need, like, perfectly. You never stop thinking, oh my god, this guy's a hapless idiot. This is a dweeb. This is a dweeb who demands that other people give him a handle, and you can hear the capital H in this. Yeah, it's like, I need a handle, man! Because he doesn't have an identity if he doesn't have the handle. I don't have an identity! And Freak just immediately turns and rips into his fashion style. You gotta stop letting your mom dress you, you're utterly hopeless. 
God, I mean, Freak, I cannot overstress just how much Freak gives off Ruby Rod vibes. Like, Oh, it's so true. This is someone who is too good and too queer for this movie. He really is. <laughs> yeah. Joey tries to come up with some names like The Master of Disaster, Ultra Laser, or Doctor Doom. It's embarrassing. We'll later see that his home computer, whom he names Lucy, has a Judge Dredd background that he probably made himself. It does. So this is the kind of dude who, like, reads Judge Dredd and is like, that could be me. Judge Dredd is so cool. Joey is still interrupting the conversation and Freak just keeps pushing past him and he hands Day this flyer for this place called Cyberdelia. And it's like this super psychedelic colours, blue and pink and stuff. And he says, check it Friday, come on down to this place. And Joey keeps going, man, I need a handle. And he's like, Joey, piss off. I'm trying to talk to this kid. <laughs> it's like the grown-ups are talking. Yeah. Then he puts on his sunglasses, which are like wraparound sport shades and just runway walks away. Oh, he's so cool. <laughs> Freaking so cool. The style and panache in this kid. Uh, like, again, he comes in and I'm immediately like, I want to see more movie about him. I don't need to see Dade in his 12 vest pockets. <laughs> God. So then we get to see Cyberdelia. Which is this Manhattan club. Oh, my God. I never caught the name of this place. I called it entirely the Rollerblade Hacker Arcade Rave. I mean, you're not wrong. But outside, there's like this market going on where people are selling like bootleg Chinese software and like parts and stuff. And that's where we see Matthew Lillard for the first time because he's <laughs> selling mixtapes. Bless him. You can sell mixtapes? I didn't know you could sell mixtapes. Well, at the time, it was a curated experience he was offering, specifically the greatest Zooks album, specifically using only artists who had died of drug overdoses, or as he puts it, only artists who asphyxiated on their own vomit, because you can't get this in stores, man. Lord have mercy. <laughs> and he's there with his trench coat and ripped clothes and twin braids and round blue sunglasses with tiny lenses and he's inexplicably holding a toothbrush that he periodically has with him throughout the entire movie. He's the wacky one and this is a whole movie full of wacky ones. He's the wacky one. It also helps that Matthew Lillard is quite tall and they have costumed him to look even taller. He's like they wrapped a stick insect in Hot Topic clothes. <laughs> and they put him in four different braids. Exactly, yeah. And good old Cowgirl by Underworld is playing, which is just throwback to all my old playlists. And I've been listening to that song all morning. It's so good. It gets you so pumped. It's a long song with a lot of ebbs and flows, and they use that to represent the intensity of the scene that's going at the moment while staying in the same song. It's really good for keeping the pace. So I cannot overemphasize enough how much these people are rollerblading inside this building and that there are ramps set up specifically for that in and amongst the arcade games and the air hockey table. And this was filmed in like historic London baths in England. They had to be careful not to damage these historical relics as they rollerbladed around them. So one of the main centerpieces they have is like a first person racing rail shooter on a big screen. Oh, oh, I have info about this. Oh, please go, because I saw a PlayStation logo in the background. Yeah, take it. I, uh, go, Lucas, take it away. <laughs> so, you see, kids, back in the late 90s, a computer company called Psygnosis created a game called Wipeout, which I had on the Sega Saturn. Oh, okay. This 
is an alpha build of Wipeout. No shit. They built specifically for this movie. This is an alpha build of a Sega fucking Saturn game, the it console that lasted is. like the time it took to take you to cough? Basically, yeah. Yeah, there was also a PlayStation 1 version, but the Sega Saturn 1 was the one I had, and it ruled. And it also had an incredible techno soundtrack. And so you're Amazing. basically racing hover sleds, essentially, and you've got little weapons that you pick up. In this build, it is more of a sort of like a trench run kind of race where you're avoiding obstacles, and you can like throw a ball forward to knock something down. And it's being played on these two gigantic, you know those ads in like Electronics Gaming Monthly for the gigantic like Air Force joystick? That no one could afford. Naturally. There's two of these. And Kate is playing this, one in each hand. And she is annihilating it. But she crashes out before the end of the course and sets herself a new high score. And in case you were wondering, there is an extreme graphical interface of her name smashing every name before it as it comes to the top. And it says Kate and her school. It takes so long. Extremely long. Yeah. And she's playing on like nine CRT TVs taped together, which would nowadays just be one fairly normal sized display television in any old electronics store. But this is nine massive CRTs stuck together, broadcasting this fractured image. And they stand on like, they go up a little ramp and the two controllers aren't on, like, a table. They're on, like, a rig, like, like kind of a DDR ramp, a thing you grab onto. I don't know what it's called. I'm sorry. Rail. And they're mounted there, and you just stand there in, like, this power pose posture, feet apart with your hands on the joysticks. It's wild. And immediately after getting the high score, our hero decides to enter the scene and says, that's a nice score for, for a girl. I hear you. I hear <sighs> the way you say hero. Yeah. Awesome. I love to be condescended to about video games by a guy who wants to get in my pants. I mean, God, if someone walks up to me and tells me I'm not using an optimal skill weapon build in Horizon Forbidden West, fuck, I just start taking off my clothes right then and there. <laughs> I hate him so much. So she asked if he could do better, and he says he'll give it a shot. And Kate's boyfriend, who we later learn his name is Curtis... He's handsy. He sucks. They both watch as- Does he, though? Does he suck? He'll suck later. Yeah. What personality do we get from him, though? Because, like, he just rides a motorcycle and maybe is a little disappointed that his girlfriend wants to talk about computers instead of keep banging like they were just about to. I'm not sure this dude actually has much of a personality to speak of, but he really mostly exists as an opposition for Dade. So Dade plays the wipeout- course and he still crashes out but he gets a tiny bit further than her and his name that busts through all the names to get to the top what i love about this is that in the middle of playing this video game to apparently impress kate by insulting her her boyfriend is like hey kate is this guy bothering you which yes he is yeah and then she just sort of shrugs and goes to make out with her boyfriend and leave date alone playing a video game and she's not even really watching until he finally wipes out so like good job date that really that just so effective <laughs> i love that she's just like i don't actually have to take this i can go make out with my boyfriend who has a motorcycle <laughs> literally it's not until the end when he beats her score and freak comes up it's like, oh, no one's ever beat her before. You just made an enemy for life. And she glares at him and walks away. But she's just- Oh, no, it's worse. It's worse. Because when his score knocks hers off and she looks up and sees it and looks annoyed, Dade says, well, it looks like I'm on top. That's right. He does. God, what an asshole. It's the worst. 
the worst. She is so disgusted, she leaves. And that's when Freak says, good job. You just made an enemy for life. You're like, great news, idiot. And Joey's there too. Joey is sitting there with his cigarette stuck to his bottom lip. He's just staring. Like, what did you think that was going to do? Like, in the best case scenario, what was Dade's plan here? He beat her at video game and she was like, oh, fuck me. Oh, God, I'm just going to start disrobing here. God. What did he think that would actually accomplish? Yeah, like like I said, Joey's just standing there. He's staring mindlessly at the high score as if it's some awe-inspiring thing with a durry just hanging limply from his mouth. Wow, this guy is good at Wipeout. We need to make him our best friend immediately. <laughs> and Freak gets his attention by saying, boy meets world. Let's go. Oh, beautiful. Like, I just started calling him boy meets world in my notes. Oh, my God. Because he's got Sean's haircut from Boy Meets World, but not the cool version. He's got Sean's haircut, and he really needs to have Mr. Feeney take him under his wing to teach him about life. So outside the club, we see Kate and the guy from before Curtis. They're making out. And Dave's like, oh, who's that guy? That's Curtis, says Freak. And he's like, what's he doing? And Freak says, that's it. You're looking at it. He just looks slick all day. And I mean... Honestly? That's his only character flaw. He's more interested in being, like, socially fashionable than committing computer crimes. That's his crime. He's not a crime. Honestly, his crime is, is that he's just, like, a boy toy. <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, my God. You know what? I just realized what this is. Oh, my God. I just had a huge realization just now. What? 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 He's the DM's girlfriend who wants to play and is not interested <gasps> in the game. <laughs> oh, my God. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She drug him along to computer stuff and he just really wanted to hang out and do uh, things that they were both interested in. But she made him hang out with it while he did computer stuff. Exactly. Yeah. God, we see later just how exasperated and used to this shit he is. It's wild. And he's only Listen. with Kate Libby because she is the hottest. I'm just saying, Curtis deserved better. He just thought he was going to get to bang a smart hottie. It was not in the cards for him to try and compete with her intellectually. He was just a hottie with a motorcycle, and she's allowed to just have a dumb hottie with a motorcycle. He is arm candy. Oh, what's a, what's the the guy from Mary Worth? Oh, f the the dumb guy, the himbo that is Iris ends up with. Oh, Zach. Yeah. Yeah, he's Zach from Mary Worth. Except Zach is a game designer. But anyway. Uh. <laughs> So that night, Dade's up late on his computer. After, sorry, this is after Kate and Curtis ride off on a motorbike. She doesn't put her helmet on because it would mess up her hair. Oh, that's yeah, what she she's holding the helmet in her hand with no protective gear. She's going to die. Wear helmets on motorcycles, you idiots. It's slung over her shoulder. Also, it's a dirt bike. You should not ride those in the city. Ugh. God. So that night, Dade's up late on his computer. We get like a cut to show the time on his digital clock. And we see him messing around with his school's network, and he's setting a time for a fire sprinkler test at half past nine. Cut to the next morning, we see him standing in the school hallways, and he's holding his watch up in a very dramatic pose. And I gotta point out that he's wearing, like, this black jacket with grey shoulder pads. It's so good. Oh, yeah. It's that, that armor kind of motorcycle jacket. Oh, yeah. He's gonna be wearing this jacket on and off. Yeah, yeah. so good. And Freak comes Which by- Which is ironic that he's oh. not the one with the motorcycle. He just has rollerblades. <laughs> he just has rollerblades, but he wears the padded jacket. And yeah. Freak comes by wearing this adorable white t-shirt with a cat and a rose on it, which- It's so cute. Yeah. I would totally wear if it was in my size. And Freak asks Dade, hey, what's up? And Dade just keeps holding his watch up, waiting for a very specific time. And then from out of frame, he dramatically lifts and unfolds this umbrella above his head right as 
all of the school sprinklers go off at once. <laughs> so was he going like, first off, this is a very good moment. I like this bit a lot because it's extremely dramatic. But also, what if Freak hadn't walked by and he was just doing all this dramatic posing for absolutely nothing? <laughs> See, I feel like he called Freak and said, hey, hey, rock up and meet me at 930. I got something to show you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Freak, check it out. Because he's got to perform for someone. God. Yeah. And Kate comes out and her makeup's running and her clothes are drenched and she's looking at him and she's like, what the hell is this? And he looks at her and he says, pool on the roof must have a leak. You can tell he spent all night working on that all line. All night! <laughs> the hacking took like 10 minutes. The coming up with the pool on the roof must have a leak, snappy rejoinder, was him staring at the ceiling, not being able to sleep. God, you oh, God. know it. Figuring this out, workshopping it. And Kate storms off and Freak's like, oh, oh, oh man, this is going to be good. Freak is delighted. Like, Freak is just <laughs> having the time of his life looking at these messy bitches and their drama. <laughs> like, what are these terrible white kids doing? Freak is here for it. Freak is here for it. He's like, oh, look at these horny straights. Bless their hearts. They're angry. They're probably going to fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Freak's uh, already taking bets on how long it's going to take. I think next is advanced English. Yeah, Dade hacked his way into AP English. So what I noticed about this scene, this was like, I've, I've seen this movie dozens of times. It's been about 10 years since I watched it. And I always thought it was weird that in this next scene is like the most dressed down that we ever see Kate. She's wearing a gigantic New Jersey Devils hockey shirt and like oh, leggings yeah. and stuff. And it only occurred to me this watch that she's had to borrow someone else's clothes because the sprinkler went off at 9.30. Yeah. Yeah, this is the same day. She has just borrowed, like, probably something from, like, the lost and found. Yeah. Yeah. And she shows how mad she is because in English class, they're writing quotes oh on God. the chalkboard up front. And we start I don't with understand Kate. this exercise. They're acting like this is the first day of class, but it's clearly, like, at least a week in. Yeah. And she writes her quote in this incredibly edgy oh font with a massive oh. exclamation mark that has a drop shadow despite being on a chalkboard. <laughs> and she finishes it off by scraping her nails along the board with the final chalk underline. And the quote is, God gave men brains larger than dogs so they wouldn't hump women's legs at cocktail parties, which is apparently a quote from her mom who writes books for like angry baby feminist women. <laughs> And the teacher's like, oh, I'm not sure your mum counts as a significant 20th century author. And she just looks down and mutters, well, her last book sold two million copies. And it's like, oh, did she buy her way onto the New York Times bestseller list like lots of other people do? <laughs> what I do like, though, about this whole scene, I think the blocking in this scene is actually really great because the teacher starts at the back and there's a lot of unspoken gestures. Like when Kate Libby says that, the teacher like makes a gesture with his hand like he's snuffing a candle and just goes like he's saying nice burn. And the whole scene is basically the teacher moving around through the classroom, sitting in different spots while the students move out the front. And I don't know, something about this scene, I just really, really love how it's blocked. There's something about it. Yeah. And there's the slow reveal of each of their quotes and like because it's on Kate for a while. And then as the teacher moves, the camera moves and we can see Dave, who has written some incredibly pretentious Ginsburg nonsense on the board. This one's from Hal and other poems, and he wrote, Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night. What is this assignment? 
It's just like bring up something that is interesting to you from a leading 20th century author. But the teacher's reaction to this, right? I only realized it because in my movie watching of the last few years, I finally sat down and watched the Mel Brooks History of the World Part 1. And what the teacher does here, where he leans over on his elbow and he puts his hand on his chin and he says, nice, very nice. He's doing the Dom DeLuise as the emperor thing where he says, "Really nice, not thrilling, but nice. Huh. Huh. Like the camera angle, everything. I, I, I put them side by side to be sure. No shit. It's so strange. I wondered what it was doing there. And Kate's like, despite having drawn her quote on the chalkboard besides Dade, she looks at him. He's like, hold on. I just realized you're here. And she's like, he's not in this class. And Dade's like, I said, give me time. And Kate physically lunges over the teacher's desk and climbs over it to snatch up his enrollment printout. From where he's sitting in the front row. The dot matrix endlessly long printout. <laughs> yeah, the teacher has the... The role. The whole class written out just with him. Well, I suppose he'd have to check the role and send it back. Also, behind- Yeah, but why is oh, he sorry. carrying it around if we're that deep into class? Because obviously he didn't do a good job considering what's about to happen. Doesn't he lean forward and take it off the desk? I don't remember now. Yeah, he picks it up to check it. He picks it up to look at it and he says, yeah, he's here. And then Kate snatches it away from him. The real reason is so that Kate can snatch it away and be very angry about this. Yeah. Also, the teacher's sitting in the front row at this point and behind him, there's this one student. So this student's top half, he's wearing a plaid blue and white vest open. Oh, yeah, that guy. And what looks like a shark tooth necklace and nothing else. <laughs> Must be a, a balmy day in New York. It's some real fucking like 10 things I hate about you, like clueless kind of like extra fashion styles in this movie. <sighs> so speaking of fashion, <laughs> the teacher steps away from this building drama, glances up at the board and in an incredulous tone reads off of all the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most. At which point, Matthew Lillard with a very big smile says, Ozzy Osbourne. Uh. And I was like, who? Who are you? You are not in my class. Also, like, this is, like, peak outfit. He's wearing a black leotard with massive holes in the elbows that his arms are hanging out of. And over that, he's wearing a shirt of a kid looking at Jesus Stigmata and asking, what happened to his hands? But, like, with the sleeves and midriff cut off over this leotard. Yeah, that's a Smashing Pumpkins Siamese Dream album cover shirt. Oh, my God. See, I, I, I don't know yeah. that is. <laughs> and, and the pants with the bondage straps crossing over at the knee as well. Yes. In addition to his, he's so cute. And the uh, teacher calls this class crashing like it's a thing. Who who crashes other people's classes in high school? What are you What are you doing? What is this? I would say that Serial is, he's later revealed to his name be Serial Killer. Doesn't he say his real name here is Emmanuel Goldstein? Yes. Yep. You know, the resistance leader from 1984. God. Wow. I originally thought that he'd been sent there by Freak to eavesdrop, but I realized you don't find out till later. He has no idea who Dade is. He doesn't know that Dade is the guy that Freak met. Mm -hmm. So he's just randomly here. And the teacher's like, you're not on my list. And Matthew Lillard lifts his little tiny blue glass up his face. And in the most stoner voice says, whoa, this isn't woodshop class, man. He's the wacky one. Yeah, the teacher walks him to the door saying things like, okay, don't call us. We'll call you. We'll do lunch. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. I'm done with you disrupting us. Yeah, he's like, get out of here. And Matthew Lillard basically runs up going like, whoop, 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 whoop. <laughs> 
Oh my god. He's, he's I just I don't understand the the class crashing. How do you how do you do that? This is a high school. I do remember certain people that I knew in high school attempting to do that where you would follow a friend to their class rather than to your own, but it was patently obvious because again, it's the middle of the school year. A teacher knows who's in their classes. Yeah, at least by like the first week they're recognizing most of the faces and there's only so many chairs. We go back to home where Nate is now wearing the outfit that he wore on the first day of school, which makes me think that this scene has some continuity stuff that was sort of chopped around on the editing table. And his mom asks, so what did you learn at school today? And he says, revenge. In like the most dramatic 17-year-old voice. Sorry, 18-year-old voice. Like, oh, buddy, I'm sorry, you're really behind the curve. We learned all about revenge in middle school. (laughs) And mom's like, is it a girl? Also, please fill out these college applications, you idiot. You're a senior. You should have been doing this your like last year. Yeah. <laughs> it establishes basically that they have a bit of a strained relationship and that he's very sulky and rude to her. His mom leaves to go to work because, yeah, various times throughout, he'll kind of see her. They'll have a conversation. She is constantly having to go and do more work stuff. So one presumes if it's a job she flew across the country for and allows them to live in a New York brownstone in Manhattan, it is a high-powered job that requires a lot of her time. Yeah. Yeah, we never actually find out what the job is, simply that she is going to work. She works at Nakatomi Plaza. (laughs) They gave her a watch. When she leaves, Date immediately grabs his bag and rollerblades and goes to Cyberdelia, where Joey is in the middle. You ever been at a party and you're trying to tell an anecdote and you just keep getting interrupted? (laughs) Poor Joey. It's an ongoing bit. And I actually kind of like it because it really establishes his place in the pecking order. And he is desperately trying to say that he did something interesting. He did not. He did not. He did something by accident. But he really wants these guys to think he's cool. And he's like, yeah, so I'm, I'm in this computer. I'm looking around. Interruption. So I'm in this computer. I'm looking around. It's like choice. And, and Matthew Lillard crashes the conversation mid other conversation with himself. <laughs> he's like, no, we're nameless. We have no names. No, no. Oh, no. I got it. You want it? I got it. Oh, please Give it do. Us. Please Give it go. Us. Come on. So you can sit at home and like, like do absolutely nothing and your name goes through like 17 computers a day. 1984, you write, man. That's a typo. Orwell's here now. He's living large. We have no names, man. man. We are nameless. Hey, can I score a fry? Thanks. Your inflection is exact. It's almost <laughs> like you've you. seen this movie a couple of times before. <laughs> No, no, sweetheart, you f***ing pseudo-intellectual high-as-balls little idiot. You you have names on the internet. And he just starts stealing Freaks Macca's fries. And and when I say stealing it, he is shoving them into his mouth for the entire rest of the scene. (laughs) He is. Yeah, he's introduced by Freak as the serial killer, as in Fruit Loops, but he does know things. As in, yeah, he seems like a moron, but he knows enough that he's useful. When Freak says, but he knows things, Lillard pushes his glasses down and looks over them at date and wiggles his eyebrows <laughs> and joey continues to try and tell his story at which point freak goes oh hey yeah serial do you have those books i load you and joey's like oh jesus christ <laughs> and so now they go ahead and they pass out a whole bunch of books that date impresses everyone by knowing already they're all just different books for different computing systems and he basically rattles off some slang names for them that people know them by the devil book the dragon book 
To the point where you think that this would be, like, important for the audience to know, it's not. It's not, no. Joey's this whole time just still trying to get in the word in edgewise. I also, I do have to stress real quick. Joey's wearing, like, this long-sleeved, high-necked blue jumper, what Americans would call a sweater. Practically a turtleneck with these overalls again, done up really, really high and a backwards cap. And he's just chain-smoking this whole scene. It's such a juxtaposition. Yeah, I think everybody else is just smoking pot, but he's got just full-on cigarettes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, he says, so I was looking around at this computer, and he finally gets to the nut of the story, and he says, so I find out it's a bank, and everyone else at the table stops what they're doing and stares at him. Yeah, except for Stereol, who keeps stuffing his face full of fries. That's yeah. basically his whole thing is that he accidentally hacked a bank in Iowa, which is several states away, and that he found out later while looking at the news the next day that an ATM somewhere in Iowa spat out like $700 in the middle of the night. And he's like, so I did that, right? Please think I'm cool now. He expects his congratulations and instead Freak stares at him. And actually, Dave says it first. He's like, you did this from your house. And Joey, like, nods proudly. Yeah, man. And then Freak tears into him. Freak and Cereal just rip him a new one. What are you, stoned or stupid? (laughs) So good. It's universally stupid. You can't hack a bank across state lines. You get nailed by the FBI. Where are your brains in your ass? (laughs) No VPNs back then. (laughs) Yep. Uh, And then they start passing around this idea of what a really good hack would be, and it would be a seriously righteous hack, would be to hack something called a Gibson. Yes, you know, like William Gibson. Which is a computer. It's a fictional kind of supercomputer that they said do like physics and search for oil and stuff like that. Okay, because this conversation is kind of impenetrable because they're all high as shit. (laughs) Yeah, so they treat it like if you've ever read the Jurassic Park books, the way they talk about Cray XMPs in those ones, it's very similar where it's just like, here is a thing we have established to be big and powerful. And in Jurassic Park, they're like, yeah, they've got five of those. And in this one, it's the Gibson. The Gibson. There is... A Gibson, which is a good big computer. And so they say that, you know, Joey, you can't do something accidental. You need to do something on purpose if you want to impress us and be considered a good hacker. And Serial becomes sexually excited by the idea of hacking a Gibson to the point where he stands up, pulls his shirt aside and starts rubbing his nipple, at which point Freak realizes that he has no fries left and gets very angry and Serial blames Joey and punches him in the arm. (sighs) God. But they basically established that the Gibson is a difficult hack, but it's not impossible if you use, quote unquote, a back door. Yeah, if you're quiet about it, if you're careful and you go in through a low security area, it should be all right. Yeah. Because now we're starting to use hacker lingo that at least sounds like something the plebeians may be able to understand, a.k.a. a series of metaphors that are like, what if you sneak in? I really like this whole scene because Dade doesn't actually say a lot besides listing off books. Dade mostly responds to other people. It's just three supporting characters setting up their interactions and motivations with each other and Dade seeing all this. A lot of movies and shows neglect this. You're like, the supporting characters don't have any relationships with each other, only with the main character. So I like that. I like that this establishes that, and I like that this establishes Dade as someone who doesn't say a lot, but when he does speak, it's useful information or something intelligent by their standards. Or saying that girls aren't good at video games. (laughs) Except for that, yeah, because (laughs) only the male side characters get respect. The female supporting character 
just doesn't get any. Just kind of building off what you said, Anna, because Dade's real good at books because Dade has spent, what, seven years of his life being able to do <laughs> nothing but read books. Yeah. Whereas these guys are talking about what you would actually do when you're doing this stuff. So it does make sense that he would hang back because he doesn't have a ton of experience that he can bring up when they're talking about it. Oh, they also bring up the three at the time most common used passwords, which are apparently love, secret, and sex. And then they add a fourth, which is God, saying the system admins love to use God and it's a male ego thing. This will come up in the next scene. Yeah. Meanwhile, more hacking. <laughs> yeah. Later that night after Joey goes home, we see him hacking away in the dark with lights flashing on his face. And he gets into this computer system. We see like a time lapse of someone holding the camera and walking through a big office building and walking up to like this big, powerful looking supercomputer with flashing lights. And someone entering the password God and it being accepted. And then circuits and information highways and stuff flash on screen. What's wild is that you would think that some of this visual language would mostly be used as a metaphor for someone going through cyberspace. But it is actually literally what he is seeing on his screen right now. It looks like the visual language in like Space Jam 2. That was the director's intention, though. There is an interview where he says he basically wanted it to not look like lines on a screen, but it wanted to look to the audience like what a hacker feels and thinks going through a hack. So this is also one of the first sequences where we're really going to see it nail that visual language of what it does throughout this film, which is the visual effect is to project the screen onto the characters faces which mm, is yeah. one thing that this movie does a lot and i think it actually was the one who sort of established this that they would use in like subsequent films as like a thing of someone is at a computer and there is exciting things happening at this computer yeah so joey's all excited and he says you and me lucy we got this and he kisses lucy's screen but because it's a crt and is built up static it zaps his mouth <laughs> we also notice that he has a retainer in, which is mm, good, good, good. Yes. Yeah. So remember how Dade said that if he was ever going to hack a Gibson, be quiet and low key about it. Guys, guard the exits. We're going to need the most foolproof plan. Every single ninja technique. All right. I need you guys to use stealth to block the doors. Did you, you say go loud? Wait. Rap. Rap. Stop. Ow. Oh. Rap. That's a lot of guys. Joey goes the full Raphael and he... <laughs> He goes loud. He goes real loud because your system admin, whose name is Hal, who is played by, I'm leaning away from the mic for this, Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller. That was Penn? That was Penn. That's Penn. Fucking Gillette. Jesus Christ. And they named him Hal because, of course, evil computer, right? <sighs> That's Penn Gillette. Pen fucking Gillette is here, and he calls up a guy named Mr. Belford, who is like, okay, there's something wrong with computer. Computer do bad thing. Mr. Belford, and somebody answers on the other line who says, my name is the plague. First words out of his mouth. And Pendulette says, Mr. the plague, something weird is happening. And he says, what is weird? Yeah, he said there's one user online. And there's 10 users worth of workload because Joey is doing everything. He is not being low-key. <laughs> yeah. And this Mr. The Plague literally calls Penn a hapless techno-weenie. <laughs> <sighs> okay. <sighs> Meanwhile, Joey is looking around. He's like, I just need, I need something that's proof that I was here. What can I copy? Just got to look for something to steal. 
He's looking for something to steal from the place that everybody dared him not to go to to prove he was there, like he's wandering through an abandoned house or something. Yeah, I got to come up with an ashtray from the haunted house. So he looks and he finds what now would be called a recycle bin, but at the time was referred to as a garbage file. And he's like, all right, give me that. I'll copy that. It should have some stuff in there that will say I was here. And he starts to copy it. So then the plague arrives at the server room. Oh, but he doesn't just arrive. Go on. (laughs) Speak it. He skateboards in. He arrives at the desk and he says, never fear, I is here. And in between the I and the is here, he kicks the skateboard up and catches it. And a flash of purple lightning lights him up from behind. Like Flau Blucher's name has just been mentioned. What is that? What is what is what does it do for this character to say never fear I is here? Is this misquoting? I mean, I know there's there's no need to fear so and so is here, but what is I is here supposed to do? It's supposed to establish this idiot. But he's not. Yeah. No, it would be n- n- never fear. I don't know. Zoro is here. But because he's saying it himself, he has to say I. And then he kind of pauses to, go, to finish it. And he goes, is here. But the thing is that he he's not portrayed like a hapless idiot. He's portrayed like a smart, dangerous person who just I can't tell for the life of me if this movie knows that this man is absurd as he is. And I cannot tell you if this is purposeful or not. Idiot isn't the right word. It's more that he's an asshole. He thinks he's untouchable. This whole movie is him bragging and boasting and making threats. And this is just the beginning. But then why would he get a simple grammatical thing incorrect? This is like his first major line. Because it's on purpose. Because it's just a pose. I'm not sure that it's doing what it needs to do here if it's setting him up as a hapless city or not. Look, all of this is aside from the fact that, like, this is the guy who played Iggy Koopa in Super Mario Brothers movie. You know, Koopa's idiot cousin who said a whole lot of big words that he didn't understand. And then he got, like, evolutionized and then spoke a lot of really smart words for no reason. Like he was in a hacky episode of... Frasier? Yeah, this is Fisher Stevens, and he's also the guy who did Brownface in Short Circuit. Both the Short Circuit movies, he did a wild amount of Brownface for that. And here's the thing, Mario Brothers was 93, so all I can really assume here is that the guys that made Hackers saw Super Mario Brothers and said, mm-mm, yummy, yummy, get me some more of that, please. I'll take another <laughs> helping of Iggy Koopa. And then they put him in their movie basically doing the same thing. But without the music, the bad guy's Iggy Koopa. Also, I got a comment on his fit in this scene. Yes. He's wearing like a braided belt. He's got a gold vest and a big fur coat. And that's how he's going. He looks like a Russian oligarch. And he skateboards into this. Okay, this computer room that he skateboards into. It is a massive area with reflective floor and walls and ceilings. It's dim except for blinking blue and pink lights. There's these servers everywhere stylized as glass towers covered in more blinking lights. The admin screen is massive. Even by today's standards, it's like a wall-sized TV with two keyboards, but they're flat glass light-up keyboards. It's an incredible aesthetic. This whole scene is ridiculous. Every button makes a tum 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 sound when you press it, which I'm sure would not get annoying. 
Oh, yeah. Like this is a set that is designed to have a whole bunch of people who have never looked at a computer in their lives before look at it and say, yeah, that seems like that's what computers are. <laughs> Especially evil computers. Mm. That seems like an evil computer. I mean, not only are there blue and pink lights everywhere, but we'll find out later. They color change for how oops. Oh, no. The situation is yeah. oh lights. Speaking of things that that viewers can understand. One thing that we skimmed over before the garbage file that Joey found. It doesn't. Oh, God. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> he opens it up and it's represented with like an animation of thousands of mathematical formulae flying around the screen, complete with ethereal music. It's meant to look like some holy grail he's just found in the garbage bin. That's more or less what it's representing. So he tries to copy that and he's like, what am I looking at? This is insane. They love this effect. They use this effect so much. Like they give it like a full 10 seconds later in the movie during an intense scene. Yeah, Dade will do this a couple of times to go into his mind palace to indicate that he is thinking about math. Well, if you've ever seen the gif of the lady trying to do math, it's <laughs> yeah. actually the exact same equations. Like, they, it's clearly an asset that is free to use. It's just like some it, it's just some basic fucking like physics formulae or like the Pythagorean theorem or something. Mm-hmm. <sighs> So this next bit, the plague looks at the computer. He sees who's online and he says, God wouldn't be up this late. He then sees what the user is looking at, that's specifically a garbage file and that there is a copy in progress. And he very quietly, like facial acting alone, panics. And he then picks up the phone and gets the call traced. Joey, meanwhile, gets shut down by his mother. His mom bursts into his room. And he's more worried that she's going to find him smoking in his room and is like spraying air freshener around so he doesn't get caught. So he only gets a partial copy because his mom turned his computer off from the switch. But Plague manages to trace him in the process. We're going to come back to this several times. But just before we leave this data visualization of like the servers and him hacking the Gibson, it's all like... This data visualization, you have to understand, this is like if someone looked at that real Linux thing that they used in Jurassic Park and were like, no, 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 that was a real, real reasonable way to organize data. Let's do that, but more. (laughs) (laughs) With neon. So Joey copies this to a bright yellow three and a half inch floppy disk and he hides it a cigarette box in his suspended ceiling next to like a bunch of porno mags yeah your teen boy hiding spot exactly mm. also his mom has the most incredible new york accent it's amazing makes janine from ghostbusters look subtle and understated <laughs> God, right? <laughs> so that night, Dade, Serial, and Freak, they all head to this rancid apartment building. Freak knocks on a door that has hackstock and a bunch of other things spray painted across it. But before it opens- And like, while they're waiting, Dade is like, hey, y'all know Acid Burn? Do you know who he is? And Freak stops, looks at him, and is like, no, I do not know who he is. Do looks- you know who he is? <laughs> and Serial kind of shrugs because Serial is not paying attention at any one particular time. He saw a <laughs> bug that looked cool. <laughs> Freak has decided to be a pedantic little shit and I approve this for him. God. <laughs> and then the door opens to this guy wearing a literal actual hood over his eyes. A monk's robe. Yeah. Yeah, he's not wearing a hoodie. This is a full on monk's robe. Yeah. And he is introduced to Lord Nikon. Like the camera. So if you're Australian, like Nikon, the camera, this will be important later. And they introduce (laughs) Dade as 
crash override. And this monk says, never heard of you. You done anything? And Dade goes, uh, no. And Nico just closes the door. And Freak has to be like, no, 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 he's cool. I promise. I promise. Let us in. And he's like, what? Uh, Did your mom get you a pewter for Christmas? Pewter. <laughs> pewter. This is like when people call pizza za. God. Yeah, he has a bit of a go at Dade, but eventually Freak stands up from him and, and the guy lets him in. And Serial come, sidles up to him and is like, hey, hey, man, can I stay at your place tonight? And then the guy takes his hood off. And uh, what was it? What is the actor's name again? Lawrence Mason. He was Tintin in The Crow as well as this. Yeah, Lawrence Mason's there. And, and he's like, again? And then his face on is like, yeah, sure, man, whatever. And they start doing weird kung fu noises. You know, just guys being dudes. <laughs> just dudes being guys. It's implied he's a little bit older than them. He's not in high school. This is his own place, whereas they are still living with their parents. So on TV, we have... For Watchers of the Wire, Bunk Moreland, who's playing Richard Gill. Special agent Richard Gill. He works with the Secret Service. He says things like hackers penetrate and ravage delicate private and publicly owned computer systems, infecting them with viruses and stealing materials for their own ends. These people, they're terrorists. He's going to say like a variant on this line like seven times in this movie. But then it's showtime and a pirate TV channel cuts in with a show called Hack the Planet. Welcome to our show! Hack the planet! Hack, Hack the, the planet! planet. for those late night hacks. Don't cola! The soft drink of the elite hacker. Who are these guys? It's Razor and Blade. Starring Razor and Blade. Whose eyeliner game is immaculate. Do you want to describe Razor and Blade, Annie? Again, just they're doing some f- kind of fucking whole gender thing. <laughs> <laughs> Incredibly camp. They're dressed like, I don't know, cyberpunk kabuki actors, essentially. Basically, yeah. Oh my god, you hit the nail on the head. They straight up say that in-universe, the show is sponsored by Jolt Cola. The soft drink of the elite hacker. Which, for Australian listeners, that was a real soft drink with high caffeine that was marketed like an energy drink would be nowadays. But it went like bankrupt in 09 or something. They tried to bring it back, but that failed too. Because it tasted terrible. (laughs) I remember seeing it on Think Geek back in the day. I found it once and bought some and tried it. And it was bad. <laughs> they basically explained the hacking technique that we talked about earlier of playing tones into the phone, which this used to be something that was more important because usually on pay phones, you used to have to pay for long distance calls. That was a thing. It used to have to pay more to go further. And these guys have decided to make it a whole fucking problem of theirs to say that, like, it should be free, but greedy corporate something or other. If it wasn't run by a bunch of profiteering gluttons. <sighs> exactly. You just said lovely. Thank you, Anna. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just getting some real fucking insufferable anime redub movie parodies about how pirating music on Napster is the only morally correct choice, says Serial Experiments Lane and Gendo Akari. Vibes here. Uh, <laughs> hacking isn't just a crime. It's, it's a survival, survival trait. trait. God. <laughs> They've literally stolen a payphone for the demonstration. And they're like, yes, this is a payphone. And look at each other. And then at the screen say, don't ask. Yeah. So these two guys, Darren Lee, who plays Razor, is a former dancer, was a dancer in lots of things and only did bit parts in movies. Nice. But Peter Kim, who plays Blade, is a lecturer for theater at Princeton and has an <laughs> MFA from the Yale School of Drama. Holy sh- He's a legit serious actor. And you can actually tell from the difference that Razor doesn't know how to speak to a camera, but Blade totally does. 
Oh, Blade is doing a theatrical. Blade's the one with the full face makeup. Yeah, and ah, he's okay. and is, is doing so much more than the other one is. Yeah, it, it's amazing just how much he owns his scene. In complete contrast to Razor, who who does fine. He's better than some of the acting in this movie, but certainly not the best. By the way, just a side note, Jay Edidin once pitched an idea for a web series of a Razor and Blade mockumentary and the making of their show, and I want it so bad. Oh my god. <laughs> That'd be incredible. Yeah, you get the feeling that like there was a lot more of Razor and Blade in some previous version of this screenplay that got like cut down because there's a lot going on with these two. Yeah. For the most part, all that needs to be established is that, one, they're really good at hacking. Two, their scene is basically local superheroes by the hackers themselves. They're hacking influencers in modern parlance. Basically. Yeah. And they're all about the dissemination of information. Yeah. They want to share out the secrets. This like they are someone from whom you learn things. Yeah. yeah. I feel like Joey could learn a thing or two from watching their show. But instead- Speaking of Joey- He's in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> He's singing along to the Iggy Pop version of the Wild One with headphones with plastic bags around them. Oh my god. Because waterproof headphones hadn't been invented yet. And his Walkman is just dangling on the other side of the shower. Yeah. And he's pretending there's like crowd screaming. He's like, he's like, ah, Joey, Joey, Joey. Like, thank you. Thank you very much. You fucking dork, Joey. And he opens the shower curtain to find that there's some suits with guns waiting to grab him. Like they were just standing there waiting for him to open the shower curtain. There's like an agent holding a freaking Menu France shotgun just pointed straight at him, cocks it dramatically and says, freeze. And Joey's like, I'm here naked in a towel. What do I do? And screams. Yeah, they, they drag him kicking and screaming out of the shower. <laughs> this incredible escalation that this is just like a naked teenage boy that they brought a million guns to go arrest. There's like 30 guys in the house, all with guns. And these are white kids, so, you know. Yeah, shit. The agents drag him out of the shower while his mum screams, like, what's going on? And Joey sees the agents taking away bits of his computer. He screams out, Lucy, Lucy, no, and throws himself at them over the couch. And his towel comes off. His towel comes completely off and they're dragging him along butt naked. Yeah, you do <laughs> see that little baby butt for like a couple seconds there. That little 26-year-old baby butt. It's embarrassing for everyone. <laughs> the last bit of the scene is his mother screaming, Joey! Directly into the camera. So clearly she's more horrified that her son is naked in front of men in suits than the fact that he's being arrested for a federal crime. <laughs> So Richard Gill arrives. Yeah, we cut to outside with Agent Gill, another agent who is the glasses guy that we'll see a couple of times. Is that right? Yeah. Agent Ray. Yeah. Yeah, that's him. He seems to have a clue. Like, he's the one who actually knows stuff about computers. We've got an uncorrupted hard drive and Agent Gill interrupts, in English, please. I didn't spend 10 years in the Secret Service not to understand what's going on. He says 10 years protecting the president. Buddy, you're getting old. You're not going to understand things. <laughs> it establishes he's all about hating hackers, but doesn't actually know a damn thing about them or even about computers at all. An uncorrupted hard drive is not actually like an extremely technical thing. It's really not. So Glasses is like, no, it's OK. He didn't get to erase anything. This is good. <laughs> God. And Gil's like, oh, oh, that's good. Yeah, all right. Take Joey in for interrogation. And then a reporter shows up and asks him for an interview. And he's like, oh, why, of course, Jennifer. He knows this reporter by name. 
And we walk past him later, spouting the exact same line you heard before, while Joey is in the background, like, picking his nose or something. No, he's being perp-walked, but they're walking him so fast down the stairs, he just lifts his feet, so they are carrying him bodily <laughs> past. But, of course, your news camera is tight on Richard Gill, and so the guys watching at Nikon's apartment don't get to see Joey go past. Uh... So we now cut to a corporate building, which we later learn is the same building that contains the giant server room, where... Mr. The Plague is explaining <laughs> the hack that happened last night. This meeting makes so much more sense to me now that I have worked in offices for more than 10 years. Yeah, because he's mad nobody read the memo about password security. Yeah, the boss's EA clicked on a phishing link and now we all have to have mandatory e-learning about cybersecurity. <laughs> in the year of our Lord 2023, this is... Painfully relevant. Very typical. <laughs> What's notable here is that there is an unknown woman here who doesn't get a name until the end of the film, but... Her name is Margot, and she's played by Lorraine Bracco. Now, listen, I thought the performance she gave in this movie was, I thought it was incompetent, but apparently she's been nominated for a bunch of awards, Academy, Emmy, Golden Globe, Screen Actors Guild. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Either she got better later or she gave the most phoned in performance imaginable. What else has she been in? Oh, oh, here's the thing. She was the wife in Goodfellas. Oh, shit. She's Tony Soprano's therapist. She's Lorraine Bracco. She's a big deal. She is the biggest name in this movie by far. Like, she would be an incredible get. Look, this is like a 1995 movie about how teens are the only cool people who understand how the world is meant to work. She's meant to be a, a scenery-chewing bad guy. Yeah, her vibe, I got it as she's someone who is a bigwig in the 80s sense and that she's a corporate climber. And she's a boss, but- And she's got big shoulder pads. Yes, and big hair, and but she's not actually all that cluey about the stuff the movie values. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although she does ask the plague whether he's dressing in the dark again. And the plague, by the way, is wearing a gold cravat and a woolly suit coat, like a dumb person's idea of a cool business guy. <laughs> so basically her performance is either really hammy chewy, or she's just completely phoning it in. And it's almost impossible to tell which is which. I mean, ¿por qué no los dos? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they're talking with this board of directors for a company called Ellingson Mineral Corporation, and the plague says something messed with the ballast tanks of one of their computerized oil tanker boats, making it capsize. Yeah, computerized oil tanker boats, a thing that we definitely had in the year of 1995. I, I they said that it messed with the simulator. Specifically, and then they received a threat that it was going to do that for the boats as well. That's right, yeah. Margot points out that, hey, isn't that what we pay you to stop? And he has to remind her that, yes, he sent a memo about this. It was her password that Joey used to get in because her password is God. This is going to introduce the stakes of this movie on a grander scale, which is that he introduces the idea that there was a hacker called like Da Vinci or whatever, who introduces a virus that is represented visually by the Vitruvian man with a perm <laughs> who demands $5 million. In seven days, I will capsize five tankers from the Elixir fleet. And it's like a terrible rasterized video of this permed dude, Vitruvian man, making threats. And this is the Da Vinci virus. And he said, this is a hacker who is basically ransom wearing us. We have to pay him or he's going to capsize oil tankers. 
And like, we'll try to establish later in the movie that this would be a massive ecological disaster, but this is not really a stake in which any of the characters are actually connected aside from it could be bad for us to get arrested for this. So yeah. like, it's a weird kind of stake that doesn't really come into play aside from just being an impetus for like the macro scale stakes for the characters yeah this is global and the stakes that actually work for this are personal it's more or less a framing device that says the the stakes for this are higher but what annie said is 100 correct the movie only cares about the small stake stuff the only reason there is a bigger plot about the ships is so that we get the plot moving along and Joey arrested because of what we find out in the next scene. They have these massive escalators throughout the skyscraper that is Ellingson and Plague and Margot just have a conversation in an open plan office about how they're in cahoots and that they in fact are doing something to defraud the company and that Plague whipped up this Da Vinci virus as a smokescreen. There are extras right next to them within like two feet, like two escalator stairs down. And they are just having a corporate espionage conversation. Loudly. He literally takes papers off a passing extra and says, I'll deal with that. And then keeps going with his like evil monologue. Right next to a whole bunch of desks. God. That are occupied. And what's funny is that what he said is that I created this Da Vinci virus that will capsize oil tankers. He could have just made a video that says he has the virus. He doesn't (laughs) need to have created something that will actually cause a global ecological disaster, which Margot even says. And she's like, you did this so that you could involve the Secret Service and arrest some hacker kid? And he goes, uh, yeah, basically, yeah. Thanks, Streetplay. This is also the point in which we find out that he has been carrying his skateboard the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) God. He wants to get a hold of Joey's computer so he can find out how much of the garbage file, which we'll find out later, is their embezzlement tool. He's like, we need to know how much of it he has so he knows if if he can incriminate us. I need to get his computer. The Secret Service have stolen it. I'll tear it apart and we'll see what he's got. It's just layers upon layers of convoluted stuff. He's got the plot with the embezzlement tool. And then when people find out the embezzlement tool, he makes another plot with the oil tankers. He makes a literal doomsday of device to cover the fact that he's stealing a bit of money from petty cash. <laughs> I'm just saying, I feel like there are parts of this movie that could have been streamlined and cut, perhaps, <laughs> no to make a cleaner way. movie. You reckon? Really? Because you're the one who said every single scene in this movie serves a purpose, and I'm not <laughs> sure this plot serves a purpose. Aside from saying the characters don't want to get arrested, they could be arrested for anything that is not this incredibly complicated (laughs) ecological disaster. I didn't say that they were good purposes. I just said that they had purposes. (laughs) I mean, it does give a ticking clock to the script that's saying that by the end of this week, this is what we need to have, which is why, in theory, the Secret Service are suspending civil rights for all these poor kids. And by the way, (laughs) they have taken Joey's computer apart like at the screws. They're not even just like looking at, oh, what are his files in his computer? They have literally taken the case of the CRT monitor apart. And Joey is so sad that he's beating his head on it and crying. (laughs) And meanwhile, like they look like they're puzzling over these computer parts, like a bunch of chimpanzees being handed like a jigsaw puzzle. One of them (laughs) even has on his hand a Nintendo power glove, which, you know, I love. Yeah, he found that in Joey's room. That's Agent Ray. That's the guy. That's because the it's so bad. <laughs> I love the power glove. It's so bad. 
So he talks to Gil and he says, hey, the file isn't on the drive. He's either very smart or very stupid. Cut to a very sad looking Joey beating his head on the table. (laughs) (laughs) So they cut Uh. him loose and they say they're going to surveil him. And the agent outside his building says, don't worry, suspect is grounded by his mother. So the two agents surveilling him, Agent Ray, the guy we saw before, and then his foil, some bald guy, start talking to each other about something called the Hacker Manifesto. (laughs) This is a real thing that was written in 1986 by a guy called Lloyd Blankenship after he was arrested for something. And it was published in the electronic zine Frack. Frack has been going since the 80s, but it's gone into decline since the 90s. I had a little look into it. But basically, it's like a super elitist thing about how hackers are better than everybody else. And it's really full of itself. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly self-important. It's so wanky. And when I was 18 years old and just getting into <laughs> Linux stuff, I thought it was the coolest thing. Oh, man. I used to obsess <laughs> over it. Little side note, I guess. Are either of you familiar with Conway's Game of Life? No. No. It's basically a mathematical experiment, which is a zero-player game. You put an input into it, and then it arranges dots in patterns that kind of repeat outwards, and it's supposed to represent ecosystems. Long story short, there's a symbol that came out of it called a glider. It's five dots arranged in a certain way, and hackers really like it because of deep implications. I literally drew that symbol on all my notebooks, but I didn't understand it. I didn't know what was going on. Oh, Oh, bless. bless. I was. <laughs> it's like there are still old notebooks which have three dots on the bottom, one dot on the right, and one dot on the top. And I meant, yeah, that means I'm a cool hacker now, right? On these physical notebooks. No, I, I didn't know a damn thing. But I equate that to what this movie was trying to do, desperately trying to cling to a subculture that didn't really work anymore and just posing so hard, not knowing a single thing. Oh, I kind of love that. Yeah. God. By the way. Do you know who proposed the symbol of the glider as an emblem to represent the hacker subculture? Who? His name is Eric Raymond. Oh! <gasps> Eric Raymond! <laughs> so he left Misfits Music and he became a hacker. <laughs> Anna, this is the gem and the holograms thing. Yep, no worries. <laughs> I figured it was something like that. <laughs> Eric Raymond! <laughs> God. Gumballs, a symbol of friendship and goodwill. Everybody loves them. Eric Raymond, the Time Lord. God. <laughs> uh, so, Agent Ray's foil is reading out this manifesto, and Agent Ray goes, it's kind of cool, and his foil says, no, it's not. It's commie bullshit. <laughs> now, it's not commie bullshit, but he's correct that it is not cool. Uh. <laughs> I just there's the one point where it's the thing that it's like we exist without nationality, skin color, religious bias, and it's like I'm reading Ready Fucking Player One all over again. God, jeez. Uh, where it's like, oh man, I realized that H being a queer black woman didn't actually matter at all. It's like, fuck you, man. <laughs> <sighs> so the lads are at school. And Serial wants to crash at Freak's place. And Dade finally says, hey, what is this guy's deal? Yeah, they're hanging out in some public toilets at the school. <laughs> you know, like cool kids. And Serial's got his toothbrush again for some reason. Yeah, he got a toothbrush. He just casually brushes the front of his teeth while looking in the mirror. And Freak explains that, oh, his parents missed Woodstock, so he's been making up for it ever since. <laughs> and they gossip about Joey being arrested for a federal crime like he, it's a detention that he got. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, did you hear about Joey's bust? Maybe it's that bacon high Idaho. Hey. Anyway, there's a big party tonight at Kate's. <laughs> Your friend just got arrested. And the thing is, Freak and Serial uh, having a great time. Dade actually seems pretty shaken. He doesn't talk after that line. He just kind of looks at himself in the mirror and looks at them. That's true. Yeah, but then he's quickly brought away from that by, hey, there's a party at Kate's tonight. And he's like, oh, I have a boner about Kate. No, he doesn't actually say he'll go. He doesn't say he'll go, but Freak looks at him and he's like, oh, girl, in his head. And it's like, yeah, yeah, he's going to go. He's going to go to the party. It's a good comment about Dade shutting up after that line, because of all of them, he's the one who's actually legitimately gotten in trouble for hacking. He will literally tell everybody later, like, no, I have a record. Y'all don't want to have to avoid touch-toed phones for the rest of your life. Mm. (laughs) Meanwhile, Mr. the Plague plays Beat Saber. (laughs) Literally what I wrote down. (laughs) He's playing prehistoric Beat Saber. He's using an old school VR helmet with like the the circle ring around him and the big heavy thing. And yet he's screaming like he's murdering someone (laughs) and swinging with his free hand that has nothing on it that would do literally nothing in the game. Gil walks up and he's like, what are you doing in a way that is just clearly deeply embarrassing? The plague is wearing a brown vest with a sheriff's badge. He is cosplaying like a Western sheriff as he plays Beat Saber. (laughs) There is a kind of revolver tucked into his waistband. He's actually like dressed as sheriff. Gil hands the Mr. The Plague a file on... Joey's known associates and they found out that he goes to school with Dade. And Dade threw up a million flags because I don't know if you remember this. Dade was zero cool. (laughs) And this is one of the best lines in the film when Gil hands the plague the paper. Lucas, you want to take this one? Yeah. He goes, ugh, hard copy. (laughs) Wow. The year of our Lord, 1995. There was going to be paperless offices by the year 2000, I remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that. Yeah, you know, that happened. Don't you have your own fax machine? Everybody's got one. (laughs) I'm going to put that on Laserdisc. (laughs) They've realized that Dade goes to school with Joey. He comes home from school while his mom is at work and opens the door to a shitload of guns. Oh, my God. Everyone's screaming at him. They throw him down on the couch. It's actually it's really scary. Like, And they shoot it from his perspective. So he sees a door yeah. and he opens it. And it's just a bunch of people screaming and pointing loaded guns at his face. And because we've established that this is, you know, a big for Manhattan apartment, but a small for everyone else apartment, everything is extremely close quarters. So it feels very suffocating in how this is shot of him just being like ransacked by these dudes and with guns. Yeah. And they get in his face and the, the noise kind of subsides. And then as all the agents step back as Dade is put down on the couch, it's revealed that the plague is sitting there and leafing through one of Dade's magazines. Like he's waiting at a dentist's office. (laughs) That's a very good way to put it. And he's like, no, no, no. Men with guns, why don't you just let us talk? And immediately Mr. The Plague calls him a loser. He explains his backstory to him and consistently calls him zero cool. Because obviously that's like leverage he's holding over him is I know your record. I know your secret identity. Yeah, but also later we hear about Plague and his shitty views, and it's like, this is your real self, so I'm going to address you as an equal. But they say he's a suspect, and they illegally searched his shit, but found nothing to do with Da Vinci. And so they lean on him real hard to get the disc from Joey. He's like, well, we know you didn't do it, but... You are now working for us or we're going to blow up your whole spot. Yeah. And there's this line that he throws in there that will like 
come back as a quasi theme later, which is we're hackers. For us, there's no such thing as family and friends. And he says, I know you feel weird about narking on your friends. And he says it like a youth pastor. (laughs) (laughs) This dude absolutely carries this scene as though he is sitting backwards on a chair. God, he really does. He says, I want to make a treaty with you. And he says, well, who are you? I'm the one who understands you. Uh, and Dade goes, nah. Weird that a strange man with greasy hair who is Iggy Koopa has broken into my home to sit in my bedroom while I sit on my bed and tells me I'm the only one who understands you. God. Like you were saying before, Anna, you see Dade think about this for half a second. And do you want to get the line? He says, nah, I don't play well with others. And the play just goes quiet. And he picks up a baseball bat and he holds it like he's about to belt Dade over the head. And then he just turns around and smashes Dade's stereo. Oh, let's be clear. That's a boombox. I would say it's a Casio boombox. It's a Casio boombox. Please excuse me. (laughs) Now, I have this question about this bat because he just sort of picks it up. Did he bring the bat with him or did Dade's mom have him go out for baseball at some point? God, it's in Dade's room, I think. It's among his stuff. So because they've like searched his closet and things. So his stuff's all over the floor and he picks it up from the floor. And that's like an adult sized baseball bat. This dude has gone out for baseball sometime in the last like three years. Well, one, remember, he's jacked for an 18 year old. And also (laughs) he couldn't touch a computer for seven years. He's probably played sports at some point just to stay sane. I almost yeah. wish that came up at some point, like he knew sports facts and people stared at him. And he was like, am I not supposed to know that? Yeah. <laughs> am I not supposed to know RBIs? That would have been interesting. <laughs> yeah. He threatens to, because if Dade was a minor when he was arrested, his records would be sealed. Right. And Plague basically says, well, no, I could release these files and also f*** up your whole future. And he gives him time to think about it. He's like, yeah, think about it. And he goes to leave. He says, oh, Dade, try and stay out of trouble. And Dave just says, blow me. (laughs) Plague smiles and he's like, thank you. He says, thank you. Like, thank you. Thank you for the offer to suck your dick. Weirdo. He's such a weirdo. So speaking of weird things that happen. Anyway, speaking of dicks. (laughs) Speaking of dicks. (laughs) Dave's lying in bed and suddenly Kate walks in to dramatic music unzips her jacket, revealing there's nothing underneath, and jumps him. And it's like a thick moto jacket. Yeah. And I'm sorry, just Angelina Jolie in cute short hair walks into the room, unzips a moto jacket to reveal she's completely naked underneath, pushes you back on the bed, straddles you, and starts wordly and furiously making out with you. Hi, what? Hi, 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 pretty girl, pretty girl, pretty. No wonder Lee married her at the end. Oh, yeah. And and we do like, we fully get a flash of boobs in a PG movie. Yeah. Mm. And like, there are some very good side boob. Then some suits come in, drag her away while she is still like lips parted, yearning for him. Yeah. They arrest him too. And then he wakes up. So this is one of like our three dream sequences that last like 20 seconds that we're going to get in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Weird, weird dream sequences for this movie. It does a lot of shorthand to tell you that these characters are attracted to each other, so they don't necessarily have to look attracted to each other when they're actually next to each other. Yeah. Even though these actors are attracted to each other, they get married. Johnny Lee Miller's face as he wakes up is like panicked and worried. 
And you actually see it cross his face of, oh, no, I like her. Yeah, no. And he looks annoyed about this. So it's like, oh, so this is the first time the 17-year-old boy has ever had a sex dream about somebody he knows? I find that unlikely. It's probably more like about somebody he hates or thinks he hates. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Definitely hates her. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So who's ready for a party? House party. House party at Kate. And, oh, again, we've talked about it at the top of this episode, but, oh, it's been a while. Oh, freak. Outfits. Freak is back, full leopard mode. (sighs) Nikon's there, too. And and he is running this party. Yeah, Nikon's DJing. (laughs) Also dressed in, in like, almost like like a a cyclist top. Like, it's very tight. And he's got these cool jeans with a big belt buckle and these clunky boots. Everyone's so hot in this movie. Yeah. And they're all like crowded into this very big apartment. God, like after 2020, that feels like such a danger zone now. That looks so stressful. That's a super spreader event. Oh, God. And you can tell it's a cool party because they're playing Connected by Stereo MCs, which was used (laughs) in every party scene from like then for the next 10 years. God. The problem is that we then get this point where like a couple of our hacker friends are standing around hanging out with Nikon and then they all ogle a woman in a skimpy red dress, which looks really good on her. And then they're like, ha ha ha, let me share her personal information with my friends, like her home address and phone number. Love it. Love it. Love it. They just fully docks her full name, address, and phone number simply to establish that he's called Lord Nikon because he has a photographic memory. And he uses this to attempt to chat her up. And he clearly uses it for good. At some point, someone calls her name and she's like, how do you know my name? Mm, Yeah, I'm sure that's going to go well. This is alarming behavior. Don't fucking do that. Yeah, no. That does not endear me to these characters. Also, the federal agent Ray's at the party, in plain clothes, very much pulling a how-do-you-do-fellow-kids look. <laughs> yeah, and, and very clearly ogling all the hot girls around him. <laughs> and it's also impressive considering, like, these are all, like, 20-somethings IRL, because, you know, minor acting standards. Yeah. But, like... This is an adult, adult man. Freak walks over to the bookshelf and shows Dade one of Kate's mom's books, which has the title, Women Who Love Men Who Are Emotional Amoeba. (laughs) God, this movie's a train wreck. (laughs) I can't look away. Yeah, Serial and Freak are being gross boys. Like, Serial makes a joke about spandex being a privilege, not a right. Yeah, they're gross. I do feel like Freak, at least on his part, seems like he's mostly here to just like disparage the outfit choices of people rather than directly to say, hey, I want to invade their privacy. Speaking of outfit choices, (laughs) Kate's outfit in this scene. Oh, my God. Oh, Kate. It's like a sleeveless. I've talked about it before at the top of this episode. It is a sleeveless zip up coveralls with like this really good loose collar it's like a a very pale cream color it looks great on her you could also zip it off she's got like a maroon smoky eye it's so good belt straps oh i just her makeup is impeccable Listen, listen, I know the particular kryptonite of Lady Mechanic with coveralls where you zip them down halfway and tie them around your waist. It's that kind of look, but yeah, like even gayer. But for code monkeys instead of grease monkeys. Yeah. Hey, there you go. There's a brief cutaway to Joey, who is not at the party. 
he's at an addict's meeting. Yeah, everyone's saying, oh, you know, I'm John and I'm an addict. I'm Sally and I'm an addict. And these are people who are, are clearly at the end of their rope. And Joey sits up and he's like, hi. And he's chain smoking and chugging coffee. And he's like, <laughs> hi, I'm Joey. And I'm, I'm not an addict, okay? My lawyer, my lawyer told them that I was an addict, but I'm not addicted to my computer. Hey, can I have more coffee? It's a good visual gag. And everyone's just rolling their eyes and groaning. So back at the party, our hacker friends have done the basically computer guy equivalent of finding the cat in somebody's bedroom <laughs> and hanging out with the cat at the party. Uh, Except they're hanging out with a laptop. Yeah, they find Kate's fancy new laptop and quote some specs which are top of the line back then, <laughs> a pittance by today's standards. Oh god, Lucas, do you have some of these written down for me? Oh, apparently it's insanely great. It's got a 28.8 BPS modem and an active matrix display in color. I bet it looks crispy in the dark. Hey, Dade, hit the lights. Oh, boy. They say things like, I want it. No, I want it to have my children. And so they turn it off in the dark and they all go, ooh. Those lights project from the screen onto their faces. Dade notices the desktop has the little acid burn symbol, but he doesn't put it together. He's like, where have I seen that before? But suddenly... Kate and Curtis kick the door in because they're going to have cool sex. And all of our poor little nerds are frozen like raccoons when you turn the light on. <laughs> and then they just decide to relax into it and start ogling her while she's having a private moment with her boyfriend and talk about her wetware matching her software. Yeah, like Nikon fully has these glasses with magnifying lenses that you flip over them. Yeah. He uses a jeweler's loop to eyeball his friend. Like, what yeah. kind of fucking revenge of the nerd shit is this? And this is where we get flash number two of Jolly's boobs. And basically someone just calls Kate Burn. And then Dade says loudly, Burn? And he says it's so loud that everyone immediately stops what they're doing and turns. The <laughs> light is turned on and Serial actively tries to hide under the desk. He is too big to fit. <laughs> and they're like, sorry, sorry, sorry. We were just checking out your laptop. And there's this moment where she looks like she's trying to be angry. But she's also very drunk and is actually like, yeah, no, it's actually pretty great, isn't it? Come on, let's talk about my laptop now. And her boyfriend is just like, what? But, babe, babe, Kate, come on. Kate, babe, we were, but we were literally just about, oh, are you really going to do this computer shit now? He calls them Leopard Boy and the Decepticons, which isn't <laughs> quite Little Miss Pink Hair in the sing-alongs, but it's awful close. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, and he said, are you really going to do this computer shit right now? We were just about to, babe, 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 come on. These guys were literally just peeping on us. Are you seriously okay with this? And she's like, yeah, fine, whatever, go ahead. That's pretty much like a movie rap on the boyfriend, which honestly, again, I feel like is reasonable for him to be kind of upset at this point. He sulks and storms away. And Serial like walks behind him, like imitating, like, yeah, right. <laughs> The sensitive type. At which point, Kate once again notices that Dane is in a room and is very angry at the fact that this idiot is in her room. Yeah, because she did not invite him to the party. That was a secondhand invite. He was freaks plus one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he again realizes, oh, wait, burn. Acid burn. You booted me out of OTV. I'm Crash Override. Oh, you're the dipshit who has been invading my turf. <laughs> and then Serial says it. Serial says the thing. The thing that has been building this entire movie, and he's so excited to say it. Anna, do you want to say it? I do, I do. He says, oh my god, you guys, check it out. Crash and burn! <laughs> and bursts out laughing. He gibbers with joy. He's so pleased with himself. 
He made it funny. Pointing at each of them, at Crash Override and Acid Burn as he's saying this. It's great. He made a ship name. <laughs> he made a ship name. And honestly, Crash and Burn is representative of the rest of this movie. How much of a garbage fire of delight it is. So now that we've established the ship name, we have to cut back to a different relationship. Oh, yeah. Which is where we find out that Mr. The Plague and the business lady are definitely boning. Yeah, she's putting her clothes back on while Plague is hacking and he like zips up her dress and stuff. But it's in a very business like, oh, yeah, our boning is over. Our business transaction is over. I don't need to be nice to you anymore. This is absolutely something she does to feel worse about herself, right? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Gotta be. In his horrible little squad. Like, you don't bang Iggy Koopa because you want to feel good about your life. He has fuzzy blankets on his waterbed. Ugh. God, his house is a, is a mess, too. It's just garbage everywhere. It's a tip. It's horrible. Yeah. It's a loft apartment that's trying to do, like, an 80s minimalist thing, which, if you remember the 80s, doesn't really do minimalist. But the gist of it is, basically, the plague's hacked into some um, some government files on Dade's mother. It's an FBI database, yeah. We basically get a gist about how, on Dade's family history, how the family separated, reconciled, divorced... Dade turned the father down, went with the mother, and that the plague's going to leverage Dade's mum to get to Dade. We get the mother, we get the boy. Precisely. Yeah, so he's like, hey, what if we kidnap his mom or something? Yeah. We also <laughs> see her name on screen here, Lauren Murphy, but it's not said out loud till a lot later. So back to the party. It's kind of cooling off now. Angel by Massive Attack is playing because this movie has no chill. <laughs> As Kate kind of takes a breather and looks out over the city in that kind of vibe of it's too hot in there. I need a minute. And Dade sees her, goes to like, like he wants to talk to her, looks off screen and literally lunges off screen with his fingers wiggling like he's about to start typing on a keyboard. Yeah, he decides to get onto her laptop and hack into some comic books, I think. He's like trying to see how fast it'll go. He's jumping around from site to site and trying different things. And she comes in and rightfully says, what the fuck are you doing? And he's like, it's cool. I I'm just looking. Yeah. Thanks for getting on my personal goddamn computer, weirdo. And he yeah. just is like, no, no, no. I just wanted to check out your sweet machine. It's too much machine for you. Oh, Lord. They do have a little tiny moment of mutual geekery that comes from a place of respect where they talk about stats and specs and then Dade baits her again oh he's the fucking worst I hate him in this scene he's so bad yeah you sure this machine isn't going to waste yeah it's another like oh that's a high score for a girl it's the same place of just douchebaggery he's just fucked this up because earlier she even says I hope you don't screw like you type she's flirting with him yeah that was absolutely like a hey you do have an opening here yeah. yeah, and then she's like, they're talking about specs, and she's leaning over his shoulder and looking, yeah. and he realizes it, and then thinks about it, and because he's a fucking idiot teenage boy, he's like, oh no, I'm starting to feel something for this girl. Better go back into some posturing, pigtail-pulling bullshit. Oh no, Angelina Jolie might want to jump my bones. I better put a stop to this one. God. I better treat her mean to keep her keen, you dumb motherfucker. Ugh. She does laugh at his posturing and she's like, what was it again? You said, mess with the best, die like the rest. And then I kicked your ass. <laughs> <laughs> 
and he just stands up and looks at her. She says, Rita, are you challenging me? He says, name mistake. And she looks at him. And actually, I really like at this point, Jolie is playing her as just drunk enough to make a bad decision at this point. <laughs> it's one of those little moments of like really really solid acting where there's just the right kind of hesitation in her voice that is, of course, immediately drowned out by all the other terrible choices. But she's like, if I win, you become my slave. Which, again, she was just over your shoulder. She implied that she might be into banging you. My dude. God. Yeah, because he then repeats, your slave, and she narrows her eyes and goes, you wish. And yeah. We do, Angelina Jolie. We all do. Yeah. She elaborates basically saying that he would be her, like, administrative assistant in terms of hacking, do all the grunt work for her. Well, and what if I win? And she kind of laughs and she's like, make it my firstborn. And he says, make it our first date. And you have to smile. <laughs> Girls are prettier when they smile. Fuck you. And she's like, well, I don't do dates, but I don't lose either. So you're on. And thus begins the hacking duel portion of the movie. Have we mentioned how there's so many movies in this movie? God. This could be a whole movie unto itself, like a short film. It's wild. Y'all, in the terms of the movie, we're basically at the halfway point here. Like, just in terms of runtime. We've been recording for two and three quarter hours. Yeah. I know, it's amazing. Okay, here's the thing about the hacking contest, the rules that they lay out in voiceover, is that they're basically going to both pull hacking pranks on Richard Gill, and the duel will last until we declare a winner, which seems pretty fucking vague by the parameters. But also, f*** cops. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like, f*** this cop in particular. Oh, sure. I just mean like saying that it only wins when we say there's a win and there's no parameters for determining wins or losses. This just seems like something that a bunch of hackers would be way more granular and anal about. Yeah, like they even say the scoring will be judged on a vote of two to three by Freak, Serial, and Nikon with no appeals. Like, that's a really serious rule. And then there's like, it'll end when we decide a winner. It's like, okay. So the rules are made up and the points don't matter. Exactly. Yeah. Because this then becomes an excuse for the two of them and the rest of them to hang out all the time, basically. And because they're going to be doing hacking and because that's how the internet worked at that point, what they do is they hang out near a bunch of payphones for like hours. In Chinatown. Don't forget the montage, though, where Dave's like spray painting his keyboard with woodland camouflage. And yep. pulling out floppy disks in the mirror like they're guns. And Kate's, like, looking over password stuff. But we get a top-down view of her wearing a completely sheer top. Yeah, she's meditating. Oh, yeah, and scenes of her meditating and stuff. It's So Dade spray-painting his keyboard. His keys are stuck like that now, right? They're gummed up with paint. They're stuck. Yep. Yeah, he's a dummy. He's a dummy. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, what Annie said, they're basically hanging around at public payphones running these elite hacks. Yeah, let's run down these pranks real quick because we get like two of them back and forth before we start getting into like the second phase of this. So the first one, Kate goes in and has his credit cards massively overdrawn and puts a destroy notification on his card. So he's out on a date at a restaurant and the waiter walks up and has the big comedy pair of scissors and cuts his card in half and throws it down in front of him. <laughs> What's great is in the background of that scene, you can see his car getting towed. Nah. Nice. <laughs> the next one is that Date ups the ante by then putting his name on a wanted ad on like a sex forum, looking for a lot of sex things and also something kind of tasteless in there. His name and his work phone number. 
Yeah, and they put it on his work phone number, which has several different lines, as we find out, because, you know, he's like a government guy. So there's like 20 different lines on there. All of the lines are busy. And as he's going on answering these one by one on speakerphone, it's just a whole bunch of people just initiating the phone sex immediately. <laughs> and he's trying to like do these witty little comebacks for them. And it's not a good look, buddy. And the plague comes in. <laughs> And just hears him trying to say a line like, I want to spank your ass. And he's like, I'll spank your ass. And the plague just comes in and is like, oh, animal. <laughs> yeah, it's very much like, f*** me, f*** you. <laughs> During this point, whenever one of them is like hacking, it's like is at the phone booth hacking in a different location. The other one, be it Date or Kate, is staring at them doing it. And Kate is like touching her face. And she has one of those segmented multi-joint rings that... All the cruel girls at my high school had. Yeah, that it looks like armor. Yeah, it looks like she's got plate armor for one finger. That's what cool people do. Yeah. yeah, like the cool people do who shop at the Hot Topic. Yeah, so Kate is, they're on a skyscraper. And this is actually one of the cooler shots in the film. They clearly got a helicopter for this shot because they are up on an actual honest-to-God skyscraper at a phone exchange. And Kate hacks the police database and lists him as having DUI and 113 traffic violations, leading to him getting handcuffed and slammed onto the hood of his own car. Yeah, which, you know, in retrospect, real deadly thing to do to a black guy, by the way. Mm-hmm. They get away with it by having him arrested by a different black guy, but still. Yeah. <laughs> as he is screaming, do you know who I am? And last of all, Dade hacks into his workplace, which is like... I saw the name, it was like the Department of Finance or something, and changes his employee records. Agent Richard Gill goes from active to deceased. And he finds this out because he's called to check on something with payroll, I presume to pay his credit card bill. And <laughs> payroll calls back like he's someone else inquiring after another employee. He said, oh, you inquired about a, an employee of ours, Agent Richard Gill? And he's like, yes, yes, I did. Uh, our records show he's deceased. I'm What? <laughs> <laughs> and we get a smash cut to date saying, dead, like rigor mortis, habeas corpus, dead. And the score is tied, according to Freak. They've got a little, like, hockey scoreboard. It's a real physical sports scoreboard, and both of them are on 60 points. And the last one only got date one point from 59 to 60. What did they do? <laughs> How many hacks did they do? But oh. they've decided they need to up the ante here. So now we have new stakes, which is... If Dade wins, Kate has to wear a dress on their date. And Kate looks him in the eye and says, and if I win, so do you. Which means that she's consented to a date at this point. Yeah. Yeah, that's why we get that great facial acting from Johnny Lee Miller again as he goes, oh no, wait, she said yes to the date. Oh no. <laughs> it's This is a pause that lasts like a full five seconds as he like shifts awkwardly and looks around, looks at all the men in the room who are like judging him. And he's like, you know what? F*** it. Deal. Smash cut to date in a vinyl bodysuit. <laughs> it has the same visual language as the previous dream sequence, so we know it's another dream this time. It's very close up on the bodysuit, and it's revealed that it's Dade who's wearing it, but... But the person who wakes up from the dream is Kate, and she does the dream sit-up thing all sweaty, and then she's like, ooh. And then decides to taunt him by buying him that exact lingerie and throwing it in his locker and being like, ha ha ha, you have to wear this when I win. Ha ha ha, what a loss for you and not a victory for me at all. It's fine. Yeah, and Date is centered in the shot, reacting to it with a blank face, and then he sort of slides out of frame. <laughs> <laughs> 
God. So Dates back at home. He signs for a parcel from FedEx, which is... Oh, yeah, the laptop. An incredibly 90s clear plastic laptop. Clear plastic electronics, the best aesthetic that we left behind. Oh, my God. Bring back transparent electronics. I, uh... I had an N64 controller that had the purple transparent plastic. It was so cool. Oh, man. Look, what I just really need is, first off, the clear plastic transparent shit is good, but the frosted clear transparent plastic shit, mm, mm, that is good. I just need more transparent plastic electronic blobjects in my life return but instead of a v the u is a is an imac on its side Mm -hmm. just give me more blobjects this exceptional lump of plastic then auto plays an incredibly stuttery and overproduced plague video lord of mercy (laughs) this dramatic bitch (laughs) let me explain to you the new world order we are samurai the keyboard Cowboys. He's just explaining white hat hackers. And everyone else is cattle. Moo. As he's saying things like samurai and keyboard cowboys, we're getting like dramatic flashes of images of them. Except for when he says moo, which is like just straight into the camera. He does like a full on rent slurp moo into <laughs> the ca- into the camera. So play, yeah. He, he wants him to join him. It's like, yes, join with me. It's it's Green Goblin on the roof, being like, join me, and we'll be stronger together. Together, we can rule the galaxy as father and Dade. And at which point, he signs <laughs> off with an incredibly dorky. Enjoy the laptop. Cool. Tell us where the disc is. Just assuming he knows where the disc is. Oh yeah, you must know because you're capable, and Joey is not. In the meantime, Joey has finally been ungrounded because he looks too sad. And he immediately goes for the disc. He goes for the disc in his ceiling, calls Freak, and says, meet me at Washington Square Park. I want to give you the disc. Because someone needed to move the movie's actual plot along. And he meets Freak, and it's like how not to do an information (laughs) drop-off or something. He talks to him, says out loud in this public place, this is the disc I got from Ellison, holds it out in front of him and hands it to Freak. Freak, because he is not a moron, immediately looks around and clocks... The Secret Service agent with an early 80s Nikon F3 and a big zoom lens snapping film shots over his shoulder. And Freak is like, oh, my God, you idiot. You idiot. It's a whole bunch of idiots being the most obvious idiots on the planet. God. So Freak runs off and he roller skates off, excuse me. Oh, yeah, please. Like, look, here's the thing about this movie. You should probably assume that anyone who is a teenager in this movie is rollerblading at all times, unless you notice that they start walking. That's just going to help you later on. You will be surprised at some points that these characters are just standing around and suddenly they glide somewhere else. ABR, always be rollerblading. (laughs) If they don't have roller skates strapped over their shoulders, they're on their feet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and because they go in opposite directions, their Secret Service agents crash into each other in the middle, Keystone Cop style. Like it's home freaking alone. It's like just a random bit of slapstick that seemingly has no place in the tone this movie's otherwise trying to set. So Freak skates off and he sneaks into a public toilet, looks around... And then use some bubblegum to stick the disc behind a condom dispenser in the toilet. And then he goes straight home and he trashes 
all his computer stuff. Scraps his physical evidence. Lots of it was hard copies back then. You see him like shredding core dumps and password lists and ripping out books and actually doing, you know, the smart thing to do. Because he's the smartest person in this movie. This movie should be about Freak. I'm sorry. It's so good. Freak is amazing. This should be about Freak and his best friend, Angelina Jolie. And once again, this is so tense. This is shot really like close on him. The camera yeah. is spinning as he's frantically ripping through pages. Because he knows they're going to be at his door any minute now. And that night, a shit ton of cops show up his house. And like he goes out onto the balcony and looks out on the street and there's cops all up and down it running around and then the tv in his room turns on and you get an extremely glitchy video of agent gill going i am watching you and then he wakes up in bed yeah another dream sequence for no reason because then the cops do immediately break in so it's like th this just padded out the movie an extra minute his mom comes in and like opens the window and it's like oh come on time for school let's get up and pulls open the shade and as the shade comes up, before it even hits the top of the windowsill, Secret Service busts in with a gun. Like up through the fire escape. Yeah, they surround him with guns. He's pinned against the wall. His mom is next to him. And they say, you're under arrest for federal computer crimes. And, and there's a beat. And then his mom gets really angry at him. <laughs> yeah, it's impressive that she does not immediately go for the slipper because she just starts like smacking him. And cursing him out in Spanish. And he's like, no, 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 please, just arrest me. Just arrest me. Oh, no. Like, what are you waiting for? <laughs> please take me out of here. So they take him to a jail and they give him a phone call and give him the racist Uno comment. And then they lock a shield over the dial pad. But as soon as the guard's gone and he looks to make sure the guard is gone, he starts tapping the hang up button in a pattern to basically trick the phone into thinking it needs to call the operator, which is what they had back then. And then he uses the operator to help him dial a number that he's, quote unquote, having trouble dialing. And that's just an example of him freaking. But the important thing is that it is Kate's phone number. He calls Kate, says, I've been arrested. This disc is hot. Whatever is on it, it's really messed up. I left it in that place where I put that thing that time. And then hangs up as the guard comes back. Because Freak is not an idiot. Yeah. Although I need to point out, he's specifically angry because he's been arrested for shit he didn't even do this time. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, if you're going to arrest me, arrest me for all the cool stuff I've done, not for this boring bullshit. And unfortunately, we have now reached the point in the movie when Freak is not going to be present in many things. So it just, you know, please imagine me every scene saying, where is Freak? Why is Freak not in this scene? Can we go back to Freak? And the answer will be no every time. As a sad commentary, Freak, the one Latin character, is not just sent to jail because we didn't see Joey go to jail. We saw him in interrogation. Freak is paraded past a bunch of leering prisoners who are trying to, like, grab his hair and stuff. It sucks. Oh, it is really, really gross, especially because, like, he radiates that kind of, like, queer energy. So it feels very much like, oh, they have identified fresh meat and they're going to try to take advantage of him. And it is really gross. It sucks and I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. I hate it a lot. And again, he's like our <sighs> one Latino character. He does get to go out great in that, like you said, he knows that the jail calls would be recorded. So he doesn't even say where it is. He says, it's in that place where I put that thing that time, which Kate will know, but nobody listening would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We then cut to Kate in that bathroom or locker room, whatever, with the condom dispenser, grabbing the disc, while all of these dudes just sort of stare at her because there's a girl in here. 
Is she allowed? But she's pretty. Is she allowed? <laughs> yeah. She reaches behind it, finds the disc, puts a coin in the condom dispenser and buys one just as kind of a cover mm-hmm. and awkwardly fingers it as like twiddles it in her fingers as she walks away and does a little spin past one of the men, presumably to distract. That's right. I'm buying a condom for a quarter instead of an actual good one from the store. <laughs> yeah. Go on about your business, boys. I'm going to get laid. I'm going to have sexual relations. <laughs> so Kate and Cereal go to Dade's, and Dade's mom opens the door and sees Kate and goes, so now I see what all the fuss is about. I like this mom a lot. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> even the mom is like, this incredibly hot girl just turned up. Oh, this is why my son has been a dickhead for the past week. Yeah. <laughs> she actually has some intelligence. I love her. So Kate and Cereal ask Dade for help reconstructing what's on the disc because it's a partial file. They can't figure it out. Dade actually antagonizes Kate again. Like, do my ears deceive me? Are you asking for help? And Cyril steps in with, like, Bible verses to defuse it. Yeah, he quotes Corinthians at them. But first he says it's a wake-up call for the Nintendo generation and does the full Corinthians. When I was a child, I spake as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And at this point, they're both staring at him. <laughs> yeah, it's very much a... It's Corinthians. It's, it's Bible first chapter. Mm. And then he just sort of leaves the scene. But the mom comes back later to be like, hey, by the way, help yourself to anything in the fridge. Cereal already has. <laughs> God. Because Dave originally, when he was antagonizing Kate, Kate was ready to leave. And it was Cereal who had to then pull his socks yeah. up and go, guys, this is kind of important. Like, our friend is in prison. Put your pissing contest aside. Dade eventually says, no, I can't afford to get arrested. And Kate pleads, but he insists. So she says, okay, but please just make a copy of the disc in case we get arrested. So they have some evidence that hasn't been tampered with, something to give their lawyers. And he finally agrees. I don't know why Kate couldn't make a copy of the disc herself, because it's shown that she has a copy. But I suppose they need to have it at a third party or something. Yeah, they they need to have it stashed somewhere so that, you know, because in case all their gets confiscated. Yeah. Yeah. Later on, Mr. The Plague calls and explains that he has now hacked Dade's mom and made her a wanted criminal in the state of Washington and threateningly eats a green Twizzler. Oh, that's what it is. I thought it was a shall- no, you, you thought it was I- a green onion. <laughs> I thought it was a single amazing. raw shallot because it made a really long crispy <laughs> sound next to his mic. I'm pretty sure it's one of those like green apple Twizzlers they sold around that time. The file says that she's done for forgery, embezzlement, two drug convictions, and that she skipped parole. And he elaborates the uh, broken American justice system that says that when she's arrested, she won't get a trial. She'll go right to jail. And then he'll change the file back and Dade, your mom will disappear. Yep. Which is terrifying. Yep. Yeah. Dade immediately goes full teenage boys. I'll kill you. Kid, don't threaten me. There are worse things than death, and I can do all of them. Jesus. Yeah. There's a moment after that where Dade leaves his room and finds his mum sleeping on the couch. Clearly, she was in the middle of some work. He takes a notebook off her, and there is a moment of like, yeah, things are strained between her, but he really does love her, and he puts a blanket over her. So he's like, 
all right, this has gone too far. I can't let my mum get in trouble. And he goes out into the city, calls Plague on a payphone and says he'll give him the disc. Okay, 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 okay. Then this scene happens, which I had to show my husband earlier today because I can't stop (laughs) thinking about it. (laughs) This is the sequence that is going to stick with me from this movie out of everything. It's going to be this 45 seconds. What happens is that there's this time lapse of Dade standing around this dark alley. Like, he's standing in several locations, he's looking pensive, he's looking thoughtful, he's having a long, dark night of the soul. And then a a limo pulls up, and you would think, okay, he must be in the limo, but then you realize there are two shapes in the darkness. It is a car, and the second shape resolves into the plague, holding on to the side of the car... Like Marty McFucking Fly on a skateboard. He's skitching. He's ghost riding the whip. He's skitching. <laughs> He's skitching in. He skitches in. He's skitching. <laughs> and the car rides by without stopping. Mr. The Plague reaches out, snatches the floppy disk from Dade's hand, and skitches by, and in the mist, we assume, skateboards into the car. You see it a little bit. If you watch the silhouette, you see the car stop, and he kind of then awkwardly shuffles into the car, and they keep driving. (laughs) For the life of me, I cannot tell you if the movie realizes that this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I cannot tell you for sure if this movie thinks this is a cool move or an incredibly strange one or if it's just hilarious. But this is cinema. And then Dade, realizing as soon as he's gone, he's like, oh, no, I've made a huge mistake, attempts to sprint after the limo and then realizes it's gone. And that's the bit from the end of the trailer that I saw a million times waiting for it to come back around to tell me what was on YTV next (laughs) and if Beast Wars was on tonight. There's fog everywhere. It's so dramatic. Hackers or Beast Wars, the two genders. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, beasties. Let me speak your native tongue. Thank you for that Canadian content. (laughs) But what's worse is that when Kate calls Plague to say, I have the disc, come and get it. He specifically says, but you're to leave Kate alone. She doesn't have any involvement in this. If I'm giving you this, you leave her alone. And Plague gives him a, hey, man, if she's innocent, she'll be fine. And then goes super condescending. He's like, your mommy's safe now. Okay. As if that wouldn't tip him off that, no, this guy does not have my best interests at heart. (laughs) God, he's so creepy. Yeah. What was that you said, Annie, about Annabelle, where it's like, oh, yeah, you do what the devil says and then you win, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, it'll work every time. Yeah, you know what? You know who I would listen to? The deceiver. (laughs) Yeah, what could go wrong? It's wild how the plague goes from creepy on the phone to dorky in person. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They used to call it a telephone tough guy, but now now they call it a keyboard warrior. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dave's like, I've screwed up. I need to go talk to Kate about this. And he goes to her apartment. And there, Kate, Nikon, and Serial are looking at their own copy of the garbage file. And this is one of the very rare times we get a look at actual code. And it's some kind of core dump. Which, thankfully, I have never had to go through, but I know people who have, and they are not fun. So, Dade tries to tell Kate about the disc and him being blackmailed, but everyone's, like, super tired, and they're like, No, 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 man, I don't know what's going on. Just look at this code. It's so tight. It's so fresh. 
so lean. It's like a hacker wrote it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they say because it's incomplete, they're really going to have to work on it to try and find out what it is. And we get another time lapse. And Dade basically sits down at the computer and starts typing as everyone else looks at printouts and makes coffee and like has conversations. And you see the sun go up and come down and go up again. Yeah, he goes into his hacker mind palace with like, it's a Unix system. I know this. In the time-lapse background, there's full-on scenes of, like, Kate dancing with one of them. And then she's also spearing through printouts with a katana. It's very, like, 80s, 90s, like, brat pack shit. All they need to be a a montage where they're trying on a series of hats and shaking their head yes or no. (laughs) (laughs) And all the while, Dade is standing still. Yeah, he's just typing like crazy. But this whole time, this image that we saw before of the floating around assets of code starts to take shape and we get an animation a very very long montage of like mm. 20 seconds so of long the pieces slowly coming together to form a shape of a fractal and i think it's supposed to represent the code is coming together and this scattered code is making sense making a shape in his mind as he starts to figure out what it is yeah it's sort of calling back to that earlier concept of him like having these like association visualizations in terms of metaphors it's just using you know original content now instead of just public domain like television bits the big reveal is that it's not a virus it's a worm so they're doing an offered space they're doing a superman 3 yeah it's a superman thing it's picking up like pennies from off of transactions basically just skimming off the top of everything and storing all that into another account essentially it goes faster and faster and faster and so at a certain point it's picking up more and more and then it zips out and it erases its tracks and they're saying that it ends its run in two days and at this point it's already stolen 2.18 million bucks man and this is a point in which date is like oh this is hot i cannot be involved in this i'm i can't no i'm sorry i have to go and they're like what the hell dude we thought you were with us and he eventually reveals like no 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 i have a record i was zero cool and I'm being threatened by the brown-faced guy from Short Circuit. <laughs> <laughs> there is this bit where, like, earlier someone had listed off Zero Cool's record by saying that, like, he crashed 1,500 computers and he corrected 1,507. Very aggressively. We have a callback to that now because they hear Zero Cool and Nikon is immediately like, oh, you crashed 1,507 computers. Yeah, and he looks at him <laughs> and he says, I thought you were black, man. <laughs> Yeah, but he admits that he gave Plague the disc and that they picked him up because he had a record. And he's like, I'll make it up. I'll hack the Gibson. To clarify, we skipped over a little bit. The hackers need the full file so that they can find out who it's connected to and where it's sending the money. Because at the moment, it's not traceable. If they had the full thing, it would be traceable. And that's what the heist is. Hack the Gibson, get the full file. Get the full worm file. And at this point... They don't know about the virus yet. The internal reveal has not happened yet. We know that yeah. the worm ends its run in two days, and that's roughly the time since Da Vinci said he was going to flood all the ballast of the oil tankers. Remember the oil tanker plot? Yeah, again, this is something that is pretty much just here to have some sort of looming consequence, but it really doesn't affect the characters in any personal way at all. The stakes here are entirely for them to essentially clear their names so they don't get arrested, which is honestly fine on its own. It doesn't really need this, like, oil tanker thing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, you guys. The Vitruvian Man virus. It's the Da Vinci Code. Oh. 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 
So we have to come back to a cool moment first. Yeah. So they talk about, so Dade is like, okay, fine then. Joey found this in the Gibson. I'll hack the Gibson. I can do it. And they're like, no, 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 you'll get caught way too fast. And I believe you two can take this from here. Oh, yeah. First, he says, it's like, even if you had the password, it would still take you time to find the files. It'd take you at least 10 minutes to find the files. And the cops will have you in, in five minutes, Nikon is explaining. And he looks up and meets Serial's eyes. And Serial looks frenzied. He's like, oh, man, we're fried. And Kate's like, never send a boy to do a woman's job. If I help, we can do it in seven. And Serial busts in. He's like, you're both screwed. If I help, we can do it in six. And Nikon's like, Jesus, man, I got to save all your asses. If I help, we can do it in five minutes, man. As they say this, they all stand up and like get in the face of the other. And they realize they're all standing up in the middle of the room and they're face to face. And the date gives a big smile. He's like, all right, let's go shopping. And they go dumpster yeah. diving. And then they all start kissing. And oh, wait, never mind. What? <laughs> Actually, this whole time, Dade and Kate were staring very intensely at each other's, hardly breaking eye contact while the four of them talked to each other. It's basically Dade and Kate undressing each other with their eyes while they're talking like this and the others are yelling. Wait, is this what people talk about when they say they're sapiosexuals? <laughs> As they say, let's go shopping, Serial leans back. I'm going to go away from the mic. My sister, he's like, Yahoo! <gasps> Boom! Because Matthew Lillard does not know how to do things quietly. Matthew Lillard only <laughs> operates on one level, and it is the exact level and energy that he brought all by himself to scream. God. <sighs> My mom's going to be so mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> we, now we get a little montage of them doing all sorts of actual real life hacker stuff that worked during the 90s stealing yeah. printouts and manuals and stuff so the stealing printout thing is dating kate's job and they do it in the middle of the night by jumping into a dumpster together where of course she lands on top of him and he's like you know, if I didn't live by a strict code of honor, I might take advantage of this situation erotically, as it were. All right, this studying the blade-ass motherfucker. <laughs> oh, she reaches down into her clothes and undoes a zip, and you hear her, her moan for a moment like she's straining, but she pulls out a torch and just turns it on and starts looking around. <laughs> and Dave's like, ah. So they steal the printouts, and they are caught by an old man McGinty-ass guard. <laughs> right and kate shoots at him with a flare gun <laughs> honey don't she shoots right at him not like i mean she misses but and then she's like oh you know it's just a it's just a security thing it's my subway defense system if you fired a flare gun on a subway kate kate god can you just use a taser you can tell it's a real flare because it is on a wire the wire is visible on camera so that it doesn't hit the security guard god yes please don't kill this old man for this stupid movie <laughs> <laughs> nikon and serial are over a manhole cover because serial is digging around in this phone text van and he comes back wearing a hard hat and he's like ta-da and nikon's like dumbass we need the manual he's like, oh shit, sorry and he runs back and then the phone worker comes up the ladder and says, hey, what are you doing? And they both point off screen and scream, truck! And that person lets go of the ladder and drops and they escape. <laughs> Later, they use the hard hat and everything. Serial uses it to pose as an electrician inside the office building that they're going to be trying to hack, essentially. So he actually pops up from underneath a 
desk of the secretary lady where he was like, oh, no, no, the phone line's fine or whatever. And he's installed a tap on the phone line. Yeah, but he does it in a way where he actively comes up between her legs. Yeah. And then the bulge of the tool belt goes between her legs. Okay, I know it's meant to be, oh, look at this situation he's putting on. But Matthew Lillard looks as uncomfortable as we are in this scene. Yeah, it's a weirdly horny bit for everyone involved because like that would have been Matthew Lillard having to crouch there next to a woman's legs that like he was not, and he was trying very hard to not like make her uncomfortable I'm sure it's a weird bit for everyone yeah and then yeah. he walks away and the tool belt has pulled his pants down so we could see his plumber's crack meanwhile Nikon pretends to be a flower delivery guy and he walks through the Ellingson mineral offices he watches people typing in passwords we actually see one of the one person entering Kermit as a password <laughs> and so so he goes through and remembers everyone typing their passwords and he actually walks past the plague who is skateboarding through the cubicles. And he kind of clocks him. But they don't know each other's faces, so they don't grok onto it. Right, because remember that Nikon has a photographic memory. So he remembers this guy, but also he's looking at him like, who's this fucking weird guy skateboarding through an office building? Only a hacker would be so cool as to skateboard through an office building. He's their live-in infotech guy who also just demands to be referred to as the plague. Yeah, also uh, Nikon has his dreads tied up in a little bun. It's very cute. That's a really cute look on him. (laughs) It's adorable. Yeah. So the scene ends and the moment passes because plague takes a moment to slap a random woman's ass. Reminding you, this man is garbage. Yeah. On a skateboard. We follow the plague to his home. Yeah, back to stately Mr. The Plague Manor. (laughs) And he tells Margot that the hackers did have enough of the worm file to be able to implicate him. So he's going to launch the Da Vinci virus anyway. Start the ecological disaster. And in the fallout, they'll get away with the money. And he specifically says at this time, there is no right and wrong. There is only fun and boring. And basically says, prison seems like it would be boring. Would you rather the next 30 years sentence in jail go to them or to you? And Margot, at least to her credit, says, no, we can't actually do the thing. Also, why did you create a thing that could do the thing? Why didn't you just say you were going to do the thing? Yep. All you needed to do was threaten the simulator like you did, and then the rest of it is a dummy. But now, because you're an amoral dickhead, you're going to capsize a bunch of oil tankers, ruin the global ecosystem to hide with a comically small amount of money. Yeah. Yeah, even in 1995 dollars, this is not like destroy the world money. It's 25 million bucks split two ways. So it's, what, $12.5 million. That's not enough to live the rest of your life. Yep. No, it's, it's really not. So he triggers the virus and it's got like a full-on interface that goes start, cancel, start, cancel, flashing back and forth. And he literally has to press the button at the right time because he's a dramatic bitch. Do you know what I love in my UI is a flickering thing where I have to get the timing exactly right. I don't even like it when <laughs> menus pop over my shit. He says the virus will go off at 10.30 a.m. the next day and he calls Gil and says that the Secret Service will be held responsible if the virus goes ahead and the tankers get capsized. Yeah, and he lies and says that they had another hacker attack. And so when he blows in the call, he's like, 
we will hold you responsible. We need action. And so Gil requests arrest warrants for our team and puts their hacker aliases on the arrest warrants. Emmanuel Goldstein, a.k.a. the serial killer and everything. I'm sure whatever appellate court judge had to write that up was just like, oh, God, he's going to make me write the thing, isn't he? <laughs> this fucking guy. <laughs> A jolly pirate club with jolly pirate nicknames. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nikon and Serial have been overhearing and they immediately call Kate and Dade and they meet up on a subway to, to hash it out. While rollerblading in an active subway car. Because again, you must assume at all times that these characters are rollerblading unless you see otherwise. Oh, and not just them, because as you see the subway car go through an abandoned station, there's suddenly a bunch of people doing like circus stuff. Yeah. Just sort of pirouetting and like doing handstands on their rollerblades. Who are these people? It's Rollerblade City, man. Forget it, Jake, it's Roller Town. <laughs> One of the people literally does a full-on handstand cartwheel, bare hands on the subway floor. Oh, gross. So, like, did they just hire some really fucking good rollerbladers or what? Just, just for, like, a couple of shots? It wouldn't surprise me if that was, like, their tech advisor or something. Yeah. Like, are these the trainers that they got to train the kids how to, like, how to rollerblade, I wonder? Must be. Anyway, rollerblading aside, rollerblading never aside, this is hackers, <laughs> rollerblading is always in the foreground. Uh, they come across some stuff that says, like, oh, we're gonna talk about the plan to deal with the oil spill that happens on what they realize is tomorrow, which means that there's something premeditated happening. And Kate is the one who puts it together that the Da Vinci virus thing is linked to this worm that they're discovering. Kate is the one who actually links these two plots that have been fairly disparate for our heroes for some time. And again, yeah. we're like, we're coming up on the last act here. They figure out finally that they're being set up. The worm is there to steal the money and then the virus is to blame it on hackers while the worm like quietly ends its run. And she's like, oh, no. This is bad. We don't have a lot of resources right now. I have an idea. I'm going to go get help. And she grabs Dade and they leave the train and tell the others to lay low. Yeah, until she beeps them. Until she beeps them, yes. Because we have pagers. Back at the scene where Joey hands the disc over to the freak, we actually see Freak's pager clipped to his bag. Yeah, yeah, we'll see Bless. We'll see Dade's, like, day glow orange pager in some <laughs> upcoming scenes. Just, they have pagers. They have to beep each other. They're specifically the pagers that doesn't just show you the number that called you. They specifically show you a text message, which my dad had one of those in the 90s. To send someone a message, you have to call them. You then have to tell a person on the other line what your message is and who it's from. They will then type that into their system and it will pop up on the pager. So that means at some point, Kate had to call a person and say, yes, I need you to tell my friend serial killer, hack the planet, please. <laughs> <laughs> so they go to Cyberdelia, where Razor and Blade are holding court. Yeah, we're back to the Rollerblade Hacker Arcade rave to move the plot along. At the club, there is currently a concert being performed by the real band Urban Dance Squad. They're a Dutch rap rock band from the 90s. And some of the costumes by the extras here are incredible. There's one extra who's dancing. She's just wearing a whole ass chandelier on her head. Yes, yeah. and a disco ball yeah. helmet. It's like Eurovision. 
Yeah, and we're yeah. going to get like some really up close looks at them because basically Razor and Blade are also here. They're on stage briefly before this music set starts and Kate wants to go talk to them. So Dade decides to just, you know, try to push his way through a crowd of rollerblade ravers, which is not going to go well. No, he gets crowd surfed to the back and eventually bails and has to crawl back to Kate's feet. And she's like, I missed them. Where were you? And he sort of like looks confused and then looks up at the stage and then looks down again and looks back and he's just like, sorry. Uh, also, if you want to know what this band sounds like, I will say one phrase and it will make sense. The phrase is, we have Rage Against the Machine at home. <laughs> oh my God, you're so right. Oh, shit. Oh, you're so right. Great value, Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> <laughs> they finally get into the back of the club. Yeah. Do we find out how they get back there or did this no, crowd uh, surfing scene just like not really serve any purpose? Decide to pad well, they, they couldn't time? get in through the stage. It's implied they kind of go around the back to sneak uh -huh. in. You mean like hackers do through a back door? Hey, almost like they did it on purpose. So the room, they've got all these CCTVs lined up and stacked on each other that Kate and Dade are looking into like they're trying to get someone's attention. But then behind them, a robot arm comes into view holding a pistol, a freaking AMC automag, and it's pointing right at Dade. So, you know, they're being held up by a robot. And Dade looks down and just goes, ah! Because <laughs> you would, right? You'd scream if you saw a robot arm holding a gun on you, a real ass gun. Especially because there's been a lot of people pointing guns at them in this movie thus far. Yeah. So Razor and Blade show up on the monitors and they're like, what the hell are you doing here? Yeah. Kate explains the whole issue and they're like, uh, I don't know. I mean, we've got a TV network happening. We've got a sponsorship. But first they got to scare the pants off of Dade because they say, oh, she's buff. She's ballsy. Let's keep her. Waste the dude. And Dade panics. And the gun is just a lighter. Yeah. <laughs> Little side note of trivia here. So the gun fires and it's just a lighter and the flame comes out the end. But what's wild is that in order to do this scene, it looks like they got a real automag and made it into a prop. This matters because those guns hadn't been made since 1982 at the time of filming and were collector's items. And they very plausibly took this collector's item, gutted it, and turned it into a lighter for the movie. I know that I've seen like novelty gun lighters a couple of times in other movies, but I don't remember what kind of guns they were. I've seen them too. And the kind of thing you would see at like a cigar shop or whatever. Yeah. Tends to be a very comically not a real gun looking gun. For this exact reason. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, this gun looks kind of futuristic, but it is very real. Oh, oh, also, at this point, Dade has two big scratches on his left jaw. Oh, yeah, where no the hell did he get those? I have no idea when or where he got those. Maybe while crowd surfing? They might have been real scratches he got. Yeah, it may have just been like a thing that they just forgot to cover over with makeup that day or something. Yeah, yeah could be. Because I noticed those and I don't think he has them in the next scene. Yeah, so Razor and Blade initially don't want to help them because, like Anna said, they have an upcoming potential TV deal and they don't want to mess it up. Kate kind of goes, come on. And they're like, well, you make a compelling argument and we didn't necessarily say no. She's like, come on, Dave, these guys aren't up to it and just starts to walk away. And then they're like, wait, we didn't say no. Oh, and they don't start to walk away, please. They start they to rollerblade roller away. away. <laughs> yeah, <excuse laughs> that, me, was, yes. that was the moment when I was the most startled when they started gliding. <laughs> <laughs> 
they want Razor and Blade to help them to overload the Gibson so that they have time to now both download the worm, but also disable the virus. So they have two tasks now, and so they need to buy even more time. So it's like, you guys attack the Gibson. While they're dealing with you, we can get our shit done. But Razor and Blade point out that to hack the Gibson, you would need more than a couple of media luminaries like us. You need... An army. You need an electronic army. An army of hackers. Hackers of the world unite. Hackers across the planet. <laughs> Razor points out, he's like, well, how are you going to stop the cops? Cue Dade hacking every streetlight in New York City to a green light. And I just need to point out, they do this because they're going to be rollerblading in the street, in a lane, in broad daylight, and it's either they hack every street light for exactly the right time or there would be a rollerblade car chase <laughs> this is a very dumb movie this is the most 1995 movie i've ever seen and because it's new york the minute the lights are green everyone at every intersection smashes into everybody else and then just starts screaming at each other like ah oh, come on yeah hey what are you doing hey i'm driving but the next morning, Serial and Nikon are playing chess in a park when Kate pages them. Lucas, what does Serial always say when his when he gets paged? Yo, I'm blowing up. <laughs> it's Grand Central. Let's go. And then Nikon wins the chess game and they run away from Washington Square Park, which is where they are. <laughs> While Voodoo People plays again by the Prodigy. Because that's Dade's leitmotif. Oh, God. <laughs> God. Yeah. Yes. You can't call it that. <laughs> ah. oh, you totally can. They, like, body roll over these crashed cars and the cops are stuck behind them. And everyone meets up and, and everyone kind of yells and together and they descend on Grand Central Station. Oh, yeah. Joey made it, too. Joey comes yeah. along as well. Also, Joey is here. I don't think he has any lines on the rest of this movie, but Joey is here, too. They're, they even call out, like, some ADR stuff. It's like, oh, Joey, you made it. Joey's in this movie again. Hey, audience, do you remember Joey? I think this should have been Freak. They should have had Freak back. They're doing phone shit. They should have had Freak. They should have had Freak back. It should have been Freak. Joey did not need to be redeemed in this hacking sequence. We just needed Freak back. Joey doesn't deserve the ending he gets. We want Freak to get that ending. Yeah, Freak deserves this. They have Serial do something to the phones at Grand Central Station, which will come up later. That totally could have been Freak going to do that because that's his yeah. thing. He's the king of 9X. Yeah. Yeah. Justice for Freak. Justice for Freak. Justice for Freak. The hackers line up at a bank of payphones and they all rig up their computers to work with acoustic couplers, which basically connects a phone handset to a computer, converting it into an audio sound and back again. Now, notably, everyone has their little rigs here <laughs> to hash a certain yes. parlance. Yep, yep, yep. Notably, Dade does not have his clear plastic laptop. He has chosen to get his own laptop. The one that's spray painted with woodland camo. And he also has a visor. Uh, no, not just any visor. Tell me. Go ahead. Do you know about it? No, I don't know about this. It's a monocular FPV. What the f fresh hell is this? 
that is a tiny screen, stands for first person view, or sometimes mm-hmm. called a heads up display. Drone operators use them nowadays, actually, to look through their drones without having to hold up a tablet display. But back then, it was basically the closest thing he was going to get to a second monitor. And honestly, honestly, not a terrible idea for supporting a laptop in a phone booth, but also extremely dorky. It's extreme. It's it, it's again, this is the most 1995. <laughs> Somehow this is even dorkier than when Mr. The Plague was playing Beat Saber earlier. <laughs> imagine a Google Glass. Now imagine the Google Glass was made in the 80s is about three times as big and looks awful. Uh looks worse than it did. Like, you know how Cyclops looks awful, like a huge dork at all times? Imagine that. (laughs) Do you remember a a game peripheral called The R-Zone that came out in 1995 that was like a voice-activated thing? Go on, Google it. It looks just like this, except it's not. This looks like something you would find in a Hammaker Schlemmer catalog, and it would be called The Brain Training Device. Oh my god, you're right. That's incredible. That's some sharper image shit there. I remember it was made to capitalize on the buzz for the virtual boy. No! Really? Oh, yes! Oh, oh shit! no. There was an ad in GamePro for this peripheral, and its oh, big thing was that it could be voice activated. So it was a kid wearing one of these and yelling at his television. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. Which is what everyone wants. Oh, I just annihilated my levels with that virtual boy surprise. <laughs> That's so funny. Between this and the activator, the 90s were a deeply stupid time. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, and we get a big dramatic pan across everyone's customized boot screens. Yeah, they load them up one at a time. I think Nikon's is actually the best because it looks like an Aperture logo from Portal. It looks real cool. It's like a one second long animation of their computer starting up. We have this whole sequence of them all like jacking into the infosphere. <laughs> and we go back to that like... To that Tron-ass virtual city of computer towers that is happening in real time on all of their computers. Kate instructs everybody, use your best viruses to buy time while her and Dade look for the garbage file and also attempt to just to disable the virus. Then Serial makes a noise. Oh, God. I'm going to try and do it. Okay. Step back from your mic. I believe in all you. Right, I'm way back. <laughs> what? the fuck and then everyone stares at him because he has just made a velociraptor noise and he's sort of breathless and he says i'm sorry everyone that was a tension breaker and it needed to be done it just seems like that was just matthew lillard matthew lillarding and kate looks at him and says cereal yeah go fix the phones and this shockingly is a major plot point cereal going away to fix the phones we now start in on our hackathon, which basically means that you remember those like mean screensavers from when Dade and Kate were having their TV hack battle? They make more of those. <laughs> what we see is all across Ellison, all their screens start filling up with extreme graphical representations of Cookie Monster. <laughs> which is interesting because they're not referring to like cookies in the same way that we now refer to internet cookies right no 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 the lines of their screen are being eaten by a little cookie monster um, nom, nom, nom. and then the screen pops up with things like sit on my interface yeah and so plague and hal go on the defensive and plague looks at it and says type cookie you idiot i 
don't think that's how that works. <laughs> yeah, when you could defuse a whole ass virus by using, you know, a sneaky haha, I'm in the know code word. Because that's what a virus is. It's a sphinx puzzle, not a <laughs> destructive weapon. Yeah, you know, you mm. just, well, you don't even have any kind of like type interface pulled up. You just type in C-O-O-K-I-E on your keyboard and then you can do the Konami code. So all the phone lines are going off. There's all these techno babble nonsense they're talking about. Oh, we've got a rabbit in the system. Give it a flu shot, blah, blah, blah. And Margot shows up. And she's in this red bedazzled business suit. (laughs) She spends the rest of the scene yelling about how she doesn't understand things. Yeah, she's the person here so they can throw lingo at the screen and then also have someone say, what the hell are you talking about? He explains the rabbit as saying it replicates till it overloads a file and spreads like cancer. She's like, cancer? Cancer. So the rabbit is cancer. The rabbit's a cancer. And I feel like we're mixing metaphors here. Oh, absolutely. Plague's like, screw this, and kicks in the Da Vinci virus. It starts actively sinking the oil tankers, so there's only minutes till they capsize. While singing, row, row, row your boat. Yeah, it (laughs) does. And then he calls Dade to taunt him. First, he traces the connections to Grand Central Station Ah. so the cops can keep moving, and then he calls Dade and taunts him. He's talking to him, and the whole time, Plague has been, his method of dealing with them, rather than dealing with the viruses, is he's cutting off the hackers as he finds them. So what you'll see is throughout the scene, someone like Nikon or like Kate will have their screen flash white as their connection is cut off, just like Kate was doing at OTV to date. So he is removing them one at a time as he finds them, as the others create chaos. And when he calls Dade... To brag to him. He's like, no one's here to save you. This is your last chance to get out without a prison sentence. And he says, you're not good enough to beat me, you little shit. And Dade gets his the line of the movie that was in all the trailers. Maybe I'm not, but we are, you asshole. Because you had that thing earlier where he was like, hackers don't have any friends or family. But oh no, what if you used friends to hack the planet? Because then the phone rings and it's Razor and Blade. On your left. Blaze just like, are we fashionably late? And a whole bunch of hackers start moving in on the Gibson. Kate gives them directions and then they go. And we basically get cuts of people from all around the world. I believe England, Japan, Russia, and Italy in yeah. all picking up phones and saying in their own language some variation of, okay, let's go. And these are the coolest people you have ever seen, except for the British man. Like, the Italian <laughs> yeah. lady has, like, Liberty Spites a foot away from her head and is wearing this, like, beautiful dress in this ballroom as she talks into a phone. And the Russian guy is, like, has a cigarette dangling from his lip and he's wearing a cool leather jacket as he sits in a bunker. And in Japan, beautiful outfits, coolest people on the planet. The British man is just... Just a, just a businessman. He's sitting with a view of London Bridge with a cup of tea, and he's like, okay, let's go. And he starts typing on his gray little uh, freaking tough book. And God. it's honestly a little disappointing because this is fun, but you never cut back to these people. And I wish they had recorded a little bit more B-roll of them, like, at least typing on their keyboards or something. So you could call in like, yes, they're all working together. Remember in Jurassic Park where they had the graphical interface where Lex could go <laughs> to the different things? Uh-huh. Plague asks for a systems display, which is concentric rings of blocks around the kernel in the middle, which is four blocks together. And those blocks have red blocks drop over them as each sector is infected. So you can have the falling blocks like you're running out of time in Bomberman. 
pretty much. Also, they have to explain that the kernel is basically the brain of the computer, and Margot's like, brain? Cancer? What is happening? Colonel who? <laughs> Colonel who, that's right. <laughs> the more you cut back to the plague and everything, you'll also see this color coding happening of all these server towers that were lit with blue starting to turn red because uh-oh lights. Uh-oh lights. And now for the spinny telephone booth montage. Yep. Oh my god, what was this? They clearly had a turntable and they wanted to use it. They put each phone booth in the middle with Dade or Kate or whoever hacking, and they spin it in the middle of the screen as they are clearly towing it on a line through Grand Central Station. And it's supposed to be like, oh man, they're really doing some serious hacking now. But man, it's unclear exactly what's going on or what this is meant to represent, but it makes me dizzy just looking at it. I feel like artistically, it's such a cool idea. It's just executed for this context. It needed something else, but I'm not sure what. Hmm. Meanwhile, the cops have finally arrived. They decide to storm the station, so they go flying in, guns ready. It's like a police scramble on the scale of arresting Jake and Elwood Blues, I swear to God. Extreme violence has been authorized in the (laughs) capture of (sighs) Dane and his hacker, in the the capture of Leopard Boy and the Decepticons. (laughs) (laughs) So Dane finally finds the file, but as he does... Plague spots it because, of course, he knows where it is. He put it there. And as Dade finds it and we get like a full minute of the fractal finally resolving into something. Yeah, like again, like just his weird little hacky mind palace. And then just as it happens, Plague spots him and cuts him off. And Dade's screen goes white and he's like, shit, he got me. And so now they know where it is. And guess who's closest to it? It's down to Joey, the redemption of Joey, who should have been freak. Uh, And Dade talks him through finding the garbage file, complete with, like, slash, period, garbage. Root, slash, period, workspace, slash, period, garbage, period. It's basically like it's on a desktop. Which means that this file tree was, like, four levels deep. This was not hard to find. Oh, yeah. What's this folder? Tax documents. Untitled, untitled (laughs) pile of porn. (laughs) Dade talks them through it and they they do copy the file out onto a floppy disk. It's done. Dade grabs the disk and puts it in his back pocket and then all the worldwide hackers all push and there's like a phone call from Libby to Blade saying, shut it down and kill the Gibson. Kill the Gibson. Kill the Gibson. Roger that. While the plague is ranting and raving. Yeah, he's just yelling directly at the camera. He's Hudson in Aliens. What, you want some? (laughs) Come get some. And we also like cut to like, oh, the tankards are fine now. You remember the tankards? You remember the boats? This is actually a little tiny clever thing, which is that it's when they take over the kernel and they drop four blocks on the kernel, suddenly the tankers immediately stop because the virus was coming from the Gibson. They don't say that because they're more interested in the fact that the cops initially run in and point their guns at empty phones because Serial has rigged the phones in a different part of Grand Central Station. To, to seem like it's there. So they're in the same area, but they've gotten just a couple extra minutes. And then the final taunt... Well, first off, arf, arf, we gotcha. God, I don't know what the hell is with that. Arf, arf. 
It's in like green leopard print font. And then Anna, <laughs> I will give this one over to you in big red letters across the wall size admin screen of Ellison Mineral. Mess with the best, die like the rest. It rhymes, you see. And then the Gibson gets hit by a wharf lightning and dies. <laughs> oh, yeah, the servers in the background have got like lightning zapping up and down them. And then everyone cheers and hugs and celebrates and the cops are there and point guns at them in there. It's like, oh, freeze. Yeah, there's actually a I, I've seen it used as a reaction gift before where it goes from happy date and his face just goes, oh, oh, no. <laughs> They get marched out of Grand Central and there's a big hubbub. There's a whole bunch of crowds. Notably, as Dade is being escorted out, he sees Serial out in the crowd. As they're getting marched out, Dade's got his hands cuffed behind his back and out of his back pocket, he pulls the disc and in a very slick move that probably took several takes, he frisbees it into a nearby garbage bin. And he sees Cereal, who's gone and gotten food, because of course he did. He's dressed like a tourist. He's got like a, a New York cap on and like some big sunglasses. And yeah, he's holding a breakfast sandwich. It's a lot like when the Ninja Turtles put on trench coats to blend into the crowd, even though they're still clearly mutant turtle men. <laughs> Dade notices that Cereal is out into the crowd and he starts yelling. They're trashing our flow of data. They're trashing our rights. Trashing. Trashing. Serial, are you paying attention to me? <laughs> I am saying trashing about eight times as I am Trash. being loaded into a police car. Hack the planet. Trash. Hack Trash. the planet. <laughs> yeah, and then Serial yells back and goes, and then this poor Matthew Lillard has to be shoulders deep in a Grand Central Station garbage can in the 90s. Oh, God. And this is a tall, gangly guy, too. So this is just unpleasant. But he does find the disc with bubblegum stuck to it. So luckily, we know the disc is recovered, which means that we then cut to Mr. The Plague and his bedazzled girlfriend drinking champagne to celebrate that they won or something. Out of plastic glasses. The worst champagne glasses I have ever scene. They are like wide. They don't have a stem. <laughs> they have a flat disc around the bottom and it's like carnival glass blue. They're disgusting. Ugh. There's this bit in the riff tracks of the apple that John and I think about a lot where some characters handed a like triangle glass and the line is like, you want this glass? It's uncomfortable and it'll make you angry at how stupid it looks. <laughs> when you say triangle, you don't mean a cone, do you? You mean a glass that's shaped like a triangle prism? Yes, it's like it's shaped like a triangle prism. Yeah. I hate that. And it'll make you angry at how stupid it looks. <laughs> oh my god. But yeah, the plague and Margot drink champagne and go to bed together. They go to the bone zone. They go to the bone zone. Oh god. Where she is just going to hate herself, I'm sure, every single time. <laughs> Dade tries to take responsibility to the cops and tries to declare that Kate is, quote, just his girlfriend. She doesn't know anything about computers. She's just my girlfriend. Look at her. She's a lady. Gil is having none of it. He says, I suggest you modify your attitude because you are floating and I'm about to flush your ass. <laughs> and again, how long was he working on that line before he brought that one up? Oh, all night, right? God. Well, he's been protecting the president for 10 years. He's probably used this line like 20 times before. It's this cool guy thing. Now, here's the part that like I love and I wish there was more of in this movie. Dade's mom shows up. Yes. And they're like, your son has done so many crimes. And she's like, 
fuck you. My son is a genius and he's doing shit that you can't even understand. But he would not actually hurt anyone with what he's doing. How dare you? And really importantly, the intercom that the interrogator could use to talk to the outside world was still in the room that Dade and Kate were left alone in. So Dade just reaches out and turns on the intercom so they can listen on to what's going on. So they hear Dade's mum emphatically defending him. And she's awesome, actually. And Kate says so. And Dade agrees because, yeah, this mom rules, actually. They use like, oh, the press is here. We're going to have some things to say. And she's like, great, me too. (laughs) He says, you face arrest if you do that. Mister, I don't care if I face certain death. Hey, Mrs. Murphy rules. Yeah. Why hasn't she been in more of this movie? She's awesome. Right. Imagine a movie about Freak, Serial, and Mrs. Murphy. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. She's driving them around in her minivan. Yes. Yes. Serial, don't touch the radio. (laughs) (laughs) So we see the news crew. They're broadcasting live for a tiny arrest that doesn't actually matter. That warrants live news. And they're Hmm. interviewing Gil. And he spouts that line again. Actually, this one's a bit different. It's about how they need more funding for fighting hackers. But then the news cuts out. And Serial Killer appears in a pirate broadcast by Razor and Blade. And he is milking this because this is his moment. This weird (laughs) little freak. (laughs) It is I, the Serial Killer, coming to you in a worldwide broadcast. And what could this be? Ellingson Mineral is trying to blame innocent hackers. And he, like, puts the bank account numbers down and names and shames both Margot and Plague full names. It's pretty great. They're in a post-coital glow where, for a moment, you see Plague is completely naked, just covering his junk with the edge of the comforter with his legs stuck out. Gross. It's disgusting. And she sits up. Oh, no. Oh, no. They're going to know I was with this horrible man. A bit later, it cuts back to her and she's like, Plague, where are you? And then it pans to where he was five seconds ago and he's just gone. He is a cloud of dust in the distance. (laughs) Also, my notes exactly said uh, named and shamed as well. So, yeah. And Serial, who, by the way, is broadcasting on the Times Square TV screen, says, yo, (laughs) I kind of feel like God. And it echoes and we see it bounce off of a satellite. Uh, Also, hilariously, halfway through the broadcast... Richard Gill is watching it. Serial names Margot Wallace and Eugene Belford. And Richard Gill just goes, son of a bitch. Like he believes this <laughs> random dude who's spouting nonsense. Yeah. It's definitely one of those things like where you kill the emperor and immediately everyone on Coruscant is celebrating kind of like, well, okay, the plot's over. So we can't really have this resistance anymore. They even bring Nikon and the others into the same interrogation room and everyone's jumping up and down because they're happy. <laughs> Somehow, all of this is enough to acquit all the hackers, get them cleared of all charges, get them free, no dramas anymore. Meanwhile, Margot gets dragged off to the jail in a parallel scene to the freaks jail thing. Yeah, she's being grabbed at by prisoners. She's frantically pleading with them, saying, oh, you want me to give you a name? I'll give you a name. Eugene Belford. I know where his mother lives. (laughs) Wait. Blake bring Margot to his mom's house to bone? Oh, no. Were they that serious? Oh, honey. Oh, no. Oh, honey. Oh, God. In his childhood bedroom? <laughs> oh, no. In the oh, race no. car bed. <laughs> <laughs> 
She really does. Yeah, like you said, she wants to feel bad about herself. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we then cut to a luxury plane, like in first class, I think. It's hard to tell in airplanes in the 90s. We see Mr. the Plague in like an old man disguise. Fake hair <laughs> and beard, a raspy voice. On a flight to Tokyo. It looks like he's about to sneak in as the soggy bottom boys. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yes, he's on a flight to Tokyo and the stewardess is like, oh, do you need anything else? Mr. Babbage, named for Charles Burbage, uh, one of the inventors of the difference engine. He's like, no, no, I'm fine. Just a pillow. So someone comes along and tucks a pillow behind his head and he reaches up to adjust it and a handcuff goes over his wrist and it's Richard Gill. He's on the flight and he arrests him. Not like an air marshal or anything. Richard Gill is just here and he was waiting for the most dramatic moment to strike. That's my question. They are over the ocean. The plane left hours ago. Right? He just waited. He just waited. And now he has to sit with him. Although Plague does get to yell that, Stewardess, I'll never fly this airline again. (laughs) (sighs) Oh my God, you guys were up to the final scene. And now we cut to our final sequence. Dade and Kate are actually going on a date and they have both chosen outfits for this event. Incredible (laughs) outfits. So Kate is easier to describe here. She's in like a mini dress kimono with a giant obi belt. And she's done some incredible makeup here. She looks amazing. Double eyeliner wings. Yeah. With stockings and suspenders and everything. It looks great. Oh, she's got a garter belt on. Mm. <laughs> Lucas, try, help me explain. Help me explain what Dade is wearing here because it's dark and we never get a really good look at it. So he's wearing a black suit, but the coat has been accentuated in a way. Like he's black, black suit, black shirt. He's got a, a like sort of a cravat rather than a tie, so it's hard to see. But he's also got incredibly huge bell sleeves. Yeah, like he's the Lady of Shalott. And also, yeah, like, the, the jacket. If I'm wrong, yeah, it seems like yeah. the silhouette on this jacket here it flares out. So honestly, I thought he was also wearing a dress in this. Like I thought they were both wearing dresses. I think that was on purpose. Okay, it's a head fake, as to say, yeah, I could see this as being this like weird high fashion outfit he wears, but right? it's specifically meant to be like, are they both wearing dresses? Yeah, and yeah, like, I think that was invoked. And which is a shame because it would have been cool if they both wore dresses because he would have pulled that off with like it would have been hot as hell. dress and tall boots combo or something. Yeah. Exactly. But instead we have the specific line like where Date is like, Oh, you look good in a dress and she's like, I wish I could have seen you wearing one or something. He then stops for a second and says, You wanna go for a swim? And they inexplicably go swim in a pool completely dressed. So, like, I assume this is supposed to call back to the swimming pool on the roof joke at the beginning of the movie. But it's weird because they're like they're like at a park and then suddenly they are in a completely different location. And like, it's not that I wanted to see them break into this pool wherever the they are. But I was like, okay, so are they in like the lake in Central Park or... No, or what? Why were they even in a different location? Yeah, they're in this pool on the roof. Face deep. Yeah, they're back floating. Like neck deep in this pool, fully clothed. And Kate says, oh, I can't believe they decided you won. And Dade says like, uh, they didn't. They decided it's the only way the guys felt I'd get a date. You know, never mind that Kate had already said she'd go on a date with him if he lost, albeit in a dress. But who's complaining? Yeah, it's a little weird. Why couldn't they have just said it was a tie? You both have to go on a date and you both have to wear dresses. 
Right? Yeah. That would have been what, so much better. It's a weird, like, gotcha for Dade to be, like, the superior hacker. And he does say, oh, you're pretty good, though. You're elite. And Kate's like, if you said so in the beginning, you'd have saved yourself a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, if Dade had just said, like, hey, wow, you're really cool and good at hacking. Do you want to hang out? We could have avoided this whole situation. Instead, he was a weirdo who said girls can't play video games. <laughs> He literally was. He's kind of awful. Yeah. So they bicker for a little moment and then they look out across at a couple of buildings and they break out laughing and the camera cuts to show their view where lights on three skyscrapers are flashing on in patterns to form the words crash and burn, flickering off and on again as these office lights come on and off. Kate thinks this is the funniest thing she's ever seen in her whole life. They- kind of look at each other and they're like oh you've both been having these weird and kate interrupts dreams and it basically admits having horny dreams about each other yeah we're teenagers of course we've had horny dreams about each other we're literally teenagers our hormones have never been higher and they start making out in the pool and as the credits roll they undress each other Underwater, they're holding their breath for a very long time to undress underwater and probably bone. They pop up to the surface, mostly undressed, look up at the sky, and we get an aerial view of the pool as it zooms out and out and out, and New York becomes a circuit skyline. Chris. <laughs> yeah. So that's the movie. I just want to point out that, like, this movie, as it came up on Max for me, suggested some films I may also like after watching Hackers, such as oh, no. Wild Wild West. Oof. <laughs> the Saint. Oof. Pump Up the Volume. <laughs> Triple X. Uh. And Blade Trinity. Oh, Oof-a-doofa. my God. Yeah, that's a pretty sick burn there, honestly. I like Pump Up the Volume. But other than that, yeah, it's a, <laughs> that's a pile of trash right there. That's some selections of films. <laughs> God. The very first one was like, hey, you definitely want to watch Wild Wild West now, right? <laughs> you want to see that big spider. That- <laughs> you want to see that big spider. <laughs> that was so much movie. And so you were the neophyte to this movie. Yeah. What are your thoughts coming out of it? How are you feeling? honestly mixed it's like i feel like this is a kind of movie in the same vein as there's a lot of like teen movies where if you see them in the right age range it is foundational for you as that was the case with anna i think but if you are out of that age range it doesn't quite hit as well as it is intended to mostly because it's not necessarily for me as somebody in their mid-30s But overall, it's like there's so much movie in this movie. There's so much happening in like every second of this film. And it's like sometimes I feel like the tone goes in different places, like where I can't tell if it intends for Iggy Koopa to be cool or not. If it's cool (laughs) that he's skateboarding or if it's extremely dorky. Same with the rollerblading. Honestly, my conclusion ends up coming into I can't tell if this movie is committing too hard or not committing hard enough. <sighs> Except on the front of performing a bunch of gender, which it is doing a lot of that at all times, and that is completely effective. God, I think all of the main cast, except Joey and Dade, perform gender to some extent, to some level. Just so, so much. And if they had put Jade in the dress at the end, you would have everybody together. It's true. 
Like, I think you said, Anna, like, Matthew Lillard basically made up at least six different types of gender here for this movie alone. <laughs> Pretty much. Renaldo Santiago also was close, was like hot on his heels. Oh my god. Yeah, no, again, like huge ruby rod energy off of that one. So that's Hackers. That was Hackers. Overall, like, I don't think I would necessarily watch it again anytime soon, but it seems like the kind of thing that, like, you get together with the right group of people and it's like, let's make some popcorn and get some drinks and watch f***ing Hackers. Yeah, it's been about, I think about 10 years since I've sat down and actually watched the movie all the way through. In that intervening time, I did do another podcast on it without having to watch it, but that's just me being me. And definitely this time, <laughs> a lot a lot more stuff bumped me. Like, a lot of Dade's nonsense was just like, oh, you, you dumbass. Like, maybe don't be completely horrible in a way yeah. that you're trying to be cool. Right? But no, it's still a good time. I still have fun. Yeah. yeah. Dade, you don't have to be cool. The girl already wants to bone you. You don't have to do any more work. Sit down. You're gonna get married to Angelina Jolie. She wants to marry you, you dumb motherfucker. <laughs> and again, though, like I said, the skateboarding disc pickup is going to live in my brain rent-free for probably <laughs> the next seven to ten years. You are welcome. <laughs> Thank you for taking me through Hackers, y'all. That was fun. <laughs> this four and a half hour podcast. This is going to be that. Yeah, folks, the raw file is Lucas just done doing it to himself. <laughs> we literally, yeah, have about four and a half hours of raw right now. That's insane. Yeah. Okay. I think we're coming to our final facts at this juncture <sighs> because, wow, we're reaching the point in the podcast where my brain is just melting out of my ears from the movie I just saw and discussed. So I think we got to do the final facts now. Lucas, what is your final fact? My final fact is that if you're given a chance to make your movie, the movie that you want to make, and you realize partway through that maybe it's not going to be a great movie, and it might not even be a good movie, you should make every effort you can <laughs> to make sure everyone in that movie is the hottest, most stylish person <laughs> there's ever been. Yes. Yes. Excellent. That's such a good fact. <laughs> Anna, what's your fact? If you're a young man who feels a bit isolated and a bit lonely and looks for help in computers, looks for a community there. Don't be terrible to women. <laughs> Don't fucking pull on girls' pigtails and say their score is good for a girl. Just literally be yourself and the right people will want to bone you. It's like literally that simple. Speaking as someone who spent her whole fucking life adult life figuring out how to be herself just don't be terrible to women <laughs> full stop annie what's your final fact every 10 years there is a piece of media that comes out about how the current generation of 20 somethings are so goddamn cool and also the only people who truly understand what the world should be like because they are the first people who have ever thought perhaps society should be different somewhat in the history of human existence and every 10 years, we look back upon that media and find it to be the cringiest shit imaginable. <laughs> this has happened before. It will happen again. Embrace the cycle. I might throw in a, a secondary fact. Oh, bonus fact. What's up? Ooh. Bonus fact. Sure, it might be amoral hellscape where <laughs> nothing is ever good or lasts or stays. But you don't have to be a fucking cop. Ha! I like it. Amen. I have my own secondary fact. Oh, shit, y'all. Go for it. 
So many facts. Wolfpack. Bring back electronics with frosted transparent cases. Oh my oh, god, yes. Yes. Frankly, that should just be the fact at the end of every episode, regardless of whether or not a computer <laughs> featured in that film. Yeah, at the end of the Zoro one, at the end of the Theodore Rex one. Just bring back electronics with transparent cases. Please, please. We are Antonio Banderas in the Thirteen Warrior holding up a phone <laughs> with a transparent case. <laughs> that makes it the best movie I've ever seen. The arrow quivers are, are just like transparent plastic. You can see the arrows through them. Hell yeah, they're frosted purple. <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up for us. As you have already noticed at the end of this episode, this is not the one that we promised last time. So this is kind of a filler. We're trying to nail it down right now. We'll either see you back here for interview with a vampire next time. Or we'll see you back here for our holiday episode, which may or may not take place in January, depending on what we decide, where we are going to talk about Hallmark movies, which is going to be great. Basically depends on how badly COVID ravages the rest of the cast right now. <laughs> anyway, we'll be fine. Uh, you're all going to send very kind messages that say you hope Matt gets better soon. We appreciate in advance, but don't worry. We've got boosters and doctors and everything. We're cool. I will ooh, fight ooh, I you. I can do it. I can do it. Oh, I can do it. Oh, do you want to do it, Lucas? Okay, okay. Uh, do it, do it, do it. I will fight you comes out every five weeks. It is edited by Lucas Brown of The Math of You. If you want to follow us, I like, ready, subscribe, wherever you find things is very helpful. You can find the show at Crooked Russian Cam on Blue Sky and the Twisted Husk that used to be Twitter, as well as Tumblr. You can come and say nice things about Annie's friends, and she will tell her friends the nice things that you said about them. It's if actually COC Podcasts on the social medias. Thank you. Oh, God damn it. I was doing yeah. so good. I had momentum <laughs> and sass and everything. I, I, yeah, it's not so easy, is it, you fucker? <laughs> uh, if you have a couple of dollars, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash the jam jam. That's the one. Yes. There, there you go. Get early access to episodes. As soon as I finish them, you can get book club. Matt can sing you a thing. And there are also some weirdly high Patreon tiers. If you want to really flex on us and show us who's boss, you can drop a whole bunch of money on us. That'd show us. We are deeply intimidated by those. Thank you. Do not yeah. take them. We are calling your bluff. Do not. <laughs> Do not take yeah. those. We are not prepared to handle that. It's too much responsibility. Come on, Dade. These guys aren't cool enough to do the high Patreon tiers. But seriously, uh, do not. Please. <laughs> or do. Please. It's your money. Or do. But don't. But do? <laughs> please don't. Haha, <laughs> unless. Unless. If you want to find everything that they do, you can go to crookedrussiancam.horse or crookedrussiancam.gay. Don't go to .gayhorse. We don't have that yet. <laughs> yet. Yet. And join us next time for potentially a holiday episode or potentially interview with a vampire. That was the other one. Yes. Yes. You're right. It is difficult. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I feel so validated <laughs> now. <laughs> this is just amazing to see. All right. All right. So until next time, dear listeners, I'm Annie. I'm Lucas. And I'm Anna. And we have fought you. Ow! Wolfpack! So now I get to do the thing that I've been waiting to do now that we're recording that I can make the noise of it. So I'm like, everything, 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 everything. And I'm invisible. I'm invisible. There you go, future Lucas. That is a present for you.
this is going to be one hell of an episode. Do you feel better now? <laughs> it is what makes this movie go from terabad to cult classic. The fact that there has so much. <sighs> and every moment has a purpose. Does it? Yes. yes. Does it really? It yes. actually does. Because, I mean, New York is mostly like what? They're probably like PS num numerical value. I wouldn't know. I don't, I don't live in New York. <laughs> yeah, we're not from there, Annie. Yeah, neither uh, am I. We're foreign. Everyone on the call that isn't you is foreign on this call. Yeah, That's not fine. <laughs> That's fine. I, I haven't lived in New York either. Now, he's explained samurai, but if only, if only someone would explain to me what a ronin is. <laughs> if only there could be a little asterisk with a box down the corner of it. Yeah, something that says like... Masterless Samurai. Oh, it's a Masterless Samurai. Okay, I get it. Now, if only someone would explain what Midgard was. <laughs> Roy Thomas has you covered. So... <laughs>